This is Dave Elliott. You're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics by Monster Massacre, by A1, by Sharky. Thank you for listening. Nice, David. That it would make you say, oh, I know, I know, especially a little later. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't like that. I just never come to the room with this thing guy. I just think, uh, so. I see that every day, my friend, this thing guy. It's, it's an old friend. Uh, I don't even have to say anything. I, she knows what I'm thinking at this point. I just get there. Yeah. just the thinking thing. I know them too. It's awesome. Am I chatting during this part? I don't know. Yeah, okay. sure. All right, it's weird it's to get people to sleep over there. This thing is still out. It's only at night. Right now. Oh, holy. Seriously? Yeah, let me see. Uh, no, we're down to 108. Right now. Oh, holy. Seriously? Yeah, let me see. Uh, no, we're down to 108. <laughs> We lived in Yuma for about three years. Oh, did you? Yeah. Do you, you have a drinking problem? Uh, no, I was, I was, it, it was way, way before. I actually, no, I, I did have one of my first beers while I was out there, but I was like, I was like eight. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. No, I was, I didn't move myself out there. It was after my folks got divorced. I remember my, my parents came back from vacation. The next thing I know, it's just me, my father, and my brother moving out to Arizona. It, it was all just a quick blur and, um, and we were out there for for a couple of years. We lived in two different places over the over the course of time we were there. And uh, how old were you when you left? Uh, about eleven or so. Because oh, you, you um, almost became a criminal. So close. <laughs> yeah, so close. I remember. Yeah. I, I remember the army base. It was just there was some. Um, it's a marine base. That's why. That's, that's why. That's it. Yeah. Thank you. And drinking problem. Like everyone, every marine I know who got stationed there just developed a drinking problem there. But and then the criminal thing is their high school is the criminals. Like their football team gets chased onto the field by a squad car. That's, the That's the shtick or? Well, they, the, uh, the high school was damaged or burned down in like the late, like fifties, I think. And so, uh, they had high school in this abandoned prison for a few years. And in that time they became known as the Yuma criminals. And now their actual mascot is the, uh, yeah, is the Yuma criminals. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, he looks like the Monopoly guy, kind of. He's drawn in that same style. Oh, so he's a Republican. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hey. <laughs> hey. Oh, uh, be that. Uh, All right. Hey, oh. 11 o'clock comics, episode 320. I'm Vince B. Oh, you are. You are Vince B. And I am David A. Price. Oh, am I chiming in? Not yet. Not yet. Uh, the boy is on assignment and he will be here as soon as he refuels the jetpack. But, we can get him here. Yes, we do have a guest in the house. More talent this week. David, who do we have with us? Uh, fresh from Phoenix Comic Con. Um, and, uh, he is, um, he's, he's the creator of Jay Gonzo's La Mano del Destino. Uh, and, He's uh, the keeper of the castle and key. He is Mr. Jason Gonzalez. Hey, how's it going, guys? Awesome. Cool, cool. 
You know, every time I hear the title of your awesome comic, in my mind, I say it in the style of Brack. <laughs> I don't know why I do it, but it just comes out that oh, way. Oh, no, I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, and it works. Do it. Th- th- see, do it for yourself right now. Doesn't it work? Yeah, it totally. It's, I don't want to try it back because I'll, <laughs> I'll totally all over it. Yeah. Um, I always kind of hear um, in my head he sounds like uh, like Ricardo Montalban, you know, in, in oh, the rich Korean <laughs> That's how I kind of that, that's how I hear it in my head. So he's got that and real deep soothing La Mano del Destino. That's you know? it. Yeah. Now David is a huge Star Trek fan. Can you settle this for me? I've heard that Montalban wore a prosthetic chest plate. In Wrath of Khan, is this true? Uh, from what I've heard, it was not. Right, it was. It was all Ricardo, and uh, and I want to believe that it was. I, so. It was. I mean, like Vince, all through once once that movie came out, and just like you know the whole the urban legends with with like you know three men and a baby with the ghost kid in the background in the window with the apartment. You hear all these urban legends and these rumors from these movies. So things just yeah, and the dead the dead square pegs guy. Oh yeah, right? yeah. So you always hear, and and things just tend to stick, and then they just they they become true. And and yes, so for years, I thought because it's Mr. Roar for Fantasy Island, the dude is not a spring chicken, and it's not to say he can't be buff, but it's just it was a little hard to believe. And then listening to the commentary for Star Trek: To The Wrath of Khan, everybody is talking about how it was really. Ricardo, it wasn't That's plastic. Awesome. It wasn't so. I, I am. It's, it's one of those things where, whether it's, whether it was fake or was real, no matter how long I, I thought it was fake, I am on the it, it's real bandwagon. Awesome, and you don't have to chase someone through perdition's flames to get cheap comic books. How's that? <laughs> All you got to do is shimmy on over to Discount Comic Book Service, DCBService.com, where you and everybody you know can get rock-bottom prices on your favorite comic books and collectibles, such as the list is up, baby, and we have a new selection of massively discounted books from Dynamite. It's Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, number one. They're trying it again, doing the old Kirby uh, characters, this time written by Joe Casey. With art by Nathan Fox. Who else is attached to this? Uh, Jim Rugg is, is doing stuff. Um, isn't Tom Sholey doing uh, stuff for this too, I think? Maybe. Yes, but anyway, I, the cover price is, uh, $3.99, but you will get it for a paltry $1.99. Dark Horse is relaunching the, uh, famous Presents anthology. In 2014, number one of which you can order now. Cover price is $4.99. I think that's very smart. It is going to be a 48-page anthology instead of the, uh, what was it, uh, 64 previously for $7.99. Now it's going to be 48 pages for $4.99. Listen to some of these names. Jeff Darrow, uh, Frank Miller's Big Guy and Rusty Robot Return, Peter Hogan's in here, Steve Parkhouse, Brendan McCarthy, Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, Andy Kuhn, Damon Gentry, and Aaron Conley, Sabretooth Swordsman, and David Max Kabuki. Holy mm. crap. Uh, cover price, like I said, is $4.99. Your price, $2.49. That's 50% off. Last but not least, from Image, it's Night World, number one. 
It's a four-issue limited series written by Paolo Leandri and Adam McGovern with a art. Let's see. No, Adam McGovern does the art, right? Paolo Leandri, Dominic Reagan, uh, Sad Demon rules a haunted castle with his sleepwalking lover. It's in the Kirby style. And it's done by the guys who did Dr. Id. I found my Dr. Id. Remember I said I had that issue? Dr. Id, Psychologist of the Supernatural. I found it. And it's awesome. So I ordered this because I'm sure it would be similarly awesome. Cover price $3.99. Your price, David, what? Uh, half off. Yes. It's a dollar ninety-nine. They don't mind late orders. They don't mind order additions. And you can get your previews for a measly dollar twelve cents. Damn. And relish every page like we do. <laughs> so go to Discount Comic Book Service. DCB, yeah, we. DCBService.com. They're the best. Round. What are you drinking? Uh, with that. Who are we starting with? Yeah. Well, Vince was the last one to speak. Uh, the guest will go last. Okay. I'm drinking water, David. Naturally. Yes. Because you feel the heat that, that Jason's living in. So you want, <laughs> you want to cool down. I, I appreciate it. I am that. nothing. It's not sympathetic. I, <laughs> uh, I am finishing off the glass of, of wine that I had with dinner and, and I'm about to open up a new bottle. Um, but I am, uh, I was drinking something new, uh, called Lobos and, and it was, it was a mixture. Uh, but now I'm about to sip on, uh, the brand that I had a couple weeks ago, the Anakena, uh, the Merlot. You love the Merlot. I do. Well, I love the reds, but yeah, every once in a while I tend to go back to Merlot and stick with it for a while, and then I go back to my Cabernets. But yes, and 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 I'd love to hear what what Jason is drinking. Um. Well, uh, I think David knows that I'm a, a soberman. Um, yes. So, <laughs> and and again, totally fine. Um. But uh, yeah, it being 110 degrees out here, uh, I'm just having a glass of water myself. It's got awesome. Gotta stay hydrated, man. We can be the Wonder Twins. Yeah, absolutely. I do have yeah. a fresh pulled out of the fridge bottle of water next to me for when I am tired of the wine. So I'll be with you guys. <laughs> right on. Not right. just in spirit. I'll be there soon. <laughs> cool. I have a thank you. Of course you do. Yes. I have to thank Alex Gombach for – that's how I pronounce it. I don't know if it's the way he does, but that's the way I say Facebook if you're wrong. Yes. Our buddy Alex <laughs> uh, sent me a uh, Druyer book. You know how much I love Druyer. And, uh, he had a, it's a French, um, language original album. And he had it around and he said, you know what? I bet you Vince would appreciate this. And he sent it to me and damn if I didn't and still do. Um, massive. Yeah. You've, you've probably seen similar. I don't know if these were reprinted in, he- or printed in heavy metal, but you've probably seen similar work from Druyer in heavy metal. Massive armies, gigantic war machines. Just carnage, double page spreads. There's, um, vertical, uh, double page spreads. It's awesome. It's amazing. I should scan some pages and, and throw them up on the forum. Where's that, David? Forum.bullpenbulletinspodcast.com. Yes, cause I, I love Drew Yeh and I love Alex for sending this to me. He didn't have to do that, but I thank him. And, uh, I'm gonna try and translate it. It's that good. I'll do the old, do people still use Babblefish? Uh, you can also use, uh, translate.google.com. Yeah, I, I can do that because the Google is the thing now. So I should use that and translate it and actually bring it one week because it's amazing. 
I'll talk about the art for 45 minutes and the story for five. As it should be. That's it. Yes. <laughs> um, so thank you, Alex. That's awesome. Uh, I do, um, while I mentioned the thank you last week briefly and, and, and he knows why, uh, but I also want to, um, uh, remind Gordy that, uh, that he is, um, I'm thinking of him. Thinking of him and, and, and his family. So I hope. That, yeah, uh, me yeah. too. So we won't, we won't, um, go into it, but I do want to, um, I again have to thank him for he, we, we talked about some, actually you mentioned it real quick. Um, because you, I don't want to say you were surprised, but the, the, um, the Batman judge dread, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned how the judgment in Gotham, judgment on Gotham was, canon and uh and i mentioned how of of all the books that that i lost or or left behind when i had to leave mount vernon um that was one of them and uh and gordy had it in his garage and he sent it to me wow look at you that's a great book that kind of that kind of snuck in i the bisley's art is just it's it's amazing and the way he draws Yeah, that's the period of Biz. Like, if you saw the the Tower, well, you have seen the Tower. Talk about man. Bisley has gotten a lot looser over the years. That's when Biz Bisley was in total Frazetta mode, and he and, and he was trying to crank it out as detailed as possible. And but wow. on um, on Tower, he's also inked. Um, he's not inking himself, so he, he he's he's, uh, he's probably finagling things a little bit, but. Um, but yeah, this was, this was definitely, um, something that I, the art reminded me of, of at the time, uh, things I'd see in heavy metal. And it is just, it was, it, it was, you mentioned Frazetta, that there's, there's like Sinkevich I see whenever Batman shows up. There's, there's, just, but it's, it's gorgeous and, and, and which, and I followed Bisley to, to Lobo and everything else he did since, but it's, um, yeah, no, it, it just, it brought back a flood of memories and I keep, I, I haven't read the whole thing start to finish yet. I just, I looked at it a little bit and I mean, I'll, I'll reread it and, and talk about it on the show eventually, but right now I'm just still, um, really loving it. it and it's, and, and it wasn't the, um, it, it wasn't the, it was square bound like Dark Knight Returns, but it's not, it, it's not that the super, super shiny paper. That the prestige format had is there's it's it's slick, but it's it's almost like it's it's matte and it it's uh, I I don't tactile of it the, the 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 physical aspects of it I am acclimating myself with again but it it's uh it it's just yeah no it it I just want it's to, sweet it is man and I I uh, I do appreciate him sending it to me nice he's a good man he's an awesome man. We got another awesome man in, in residence right now that I want to hear from. <laughs> what do you got? What do you want to know, Vince? What do I? I want to know everything. Okay. I want to know how you approach your work. Uh, where does it come from? Uh, what drives you? Why the subject matter? Everything. Start from the very beginning and just proceed through your entire artistic life and tell me all about it. Um, well, I was actually just talking about this the other day. I, I think every artist origin story starts with that, uh, is the same. You know, like I was supposed to be doing math homework and I was doodling in the margins. So, um, I, I did that for, you know, most of, uh, most of, uh, Catholic school. Um, 
And then uh, I got booted after seventh grade, uh, ended up public school. And then I went to the uh, Orange County High School of the Arts uh, when I went to high school mm-hmm. and, um, you know, learned uh, beyond drawing. I think I just learned uh, learned art, you know, like college level art when I was like 14. So um, that helped kind of I think I think a lot of people get like some volition before they get into college, you know, as to what they think art is. And then um you know, when you're 18, you know everything. You get to college, and, and suddenly, you know, you're just trying to to, to find uh, trying to find things that agree with you, or or impose your will on things. You know, so um, I I was still pretty malleable when I got my uh, like art history education, and um, and that allowed me to uh, kind of explore you know different avenues of art that I think were less cool. I, you know, like I, I've always been infatuated with that uh, Catholic Byzantine iconography. You know, and uh, I ended up going uh, into graphic design when um uh, when I got out of high school I didn't want to be the uh you know cliched uh, starving artist so I you know I went into what used to be called commercial art and I got my degree in graphic design and then uh and then I um I ended up uh got my degree and like a month later I got an apprenticeship to tattoo and so I uh I tattooed for 6 years in shops um and then uh and then I had a daughter uh, who, um, you know, tattooing is great if, you know, you get, you can make a couple hundred dollars one day, you can uh, make zero dollars the other day and, and, uh, it evens out pretty well, but my daughter was going to be hungry every day, regardless if, uh, I made money or not. So, uh, dusted off the old, uh, graphic design portfolio and, uh, got a job in advertising and just started working my way through agencies, some of the bigger agencies in Phoenix. And, um, after uh, a few years of doing that, I got, uh, I got an in-house job at, uh, McFarlane with, with Todd McFarlane and, uh, I started off as the um like senior art director, I guess. I handled like a lot of the it was mostly just production work and a little bit of the advertising that went into Diamond and elsewhere and a lot of graphic design work and um Oh nice. And there I uh there I got to hang out with Todd obviously, but I also met uh met Larry Martyr and uh he's nice. an old ad guy. So um he and I kinda hit it off before I really knew who he was, you know, I just knew him as this, the, the president of our company and, uh, you know, and I knew he'd been president at, at, uh, at image. And so, um, and we got along well cause, cause we're, we're both like old ad guys and, and my job primarily was like advertising and marketing. And so, um, somewhere around there, I just, uh, you know, I'd always loved comics uh, as a kid, you know, growing up, um, that whole thing I'd, I used to, uh, read the Spider-Man strip when I was like really little, which uh, we didn't get in my city, but my grandparents got in LA and they, um, they they would cut out all of the Spider-Man daily strips and uh, and so whenever I would visit them, I just have a stack of Spider-Man I could go through. And uh, oh, that's cool. And uh, yeah, it was, it was you know it was great. And it was and uh, and then I found comic books when I was like ten or so. I think a friend of mine uh, we were going to, like get Seven Eleven to get some Slurpees or something, and he's like, oh, I got to get my comic books. And I'm like, oh, they still make those. And then uh, <laughs> I think we picked up like a GI Joe uh, eight or nine and. Uh, and I just remember looking at that and just thinking, oh man, this is like a whole book full of those Spider-Man type drawings I like, you know, cause uh, the Spider-Man strip style was so different from everything else going on in, in, uh, in newspapers. And so, uh, so I bought one like that day and just been a fan ever since. And so anyway, getting to, um, to McFarland, I was there and I, you know, had always wanted to maybe become a comic artist and, uh, uh, and then I, being there and, and having, you know, these, uh, like dual kind of mentors and Todd and Larry, it was very different, uh, approaches to comic books uh it, it really helped uh develop my sense of of what i thought storytelling could be you know um and uh and you know todd's a huge uh, kirby fan 
And so, um, he and I would just talk Kirby forever. Uh, and, uh, he would break down what it is he got out of Kirby. And, and, uh, and if you look at like just the, not really the execution, but the storytelling on how Todd tells a story and how Kirby tells a story there, there's a lot more overlap than you would first suspect because there's, Mm -hmm. because Todd's so rendered, but he's still doing these very, um, using that Kirby vocabulary. He's just uh, flourishing it a bit more. And, uh, and then Larry is, is, is all about uh, developing these, um, kind of ecosystems of these real worlds that he's, he's created. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, you know, I was there, uh, from 04 to 08 and, uh, I started kind of working on, um, just, I was working on actually a, a present for my father. I was doing this green lantern sketch and, uh, and I wanted it to look very silver age. And so I started kind of drawing in that, that Kirby style and, and, and found that, uh, kind of being that reductive when it came to creativity is actually pretty hard you know, start leaving stuff out and, and, uh, just putting in what needs to be there. And, uh, and I kind of fell in love with doing that. And so over the next couple of years, I just started developing more and more of a, of a silver age style. And, and the more, um, you know, cause I had been enamored with that, that whole early image stuff. And, uh, you know, but I also loved uh, Ramita senior on Spider-Man. I mean, to me, Ramita is Spider-Man, you know, uh, even though I worked for Todd, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> You know, I, I I always think of Ramita as the Spider-Man guy. So I love that kind of Marvel house style from the 60s. And to me, that's what a comic book looks like. And so when it came time to do my own comic book, I'm like, I, I want it to look like what I remember a comic book looks like. And then I wanted it to feel and smell like a comic book. And, and uh, you know, as a graphic designer, it had, you know, I knew all the, tr- you know, like how, what makes a comic book. I know that it's on uncoated paper, so it's absorption print over evaporative. And I know that... Uh, you know, that, um, there's a certain amount of, you know, like the yellowing that happens in older comic books. I know the, the blacks aren't, a, you know, the blacks are on one plate. They're not built blacks like they are now. And so you can see the colors underneath when the, when the colors trap underneath the blacks. And, and so yep. see, we, we, we don't have too many people who talk about the creative process or, or how they approach their comics from the science aspect of things. I love that. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, I, I, so my goal with the comic was, so, so the story, um, I mean, is, is ultimately just, uh, it's a story that I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea of, of identity and destiny. And so, and, but when it came to heroes, um, to me, there's no better, you know, I grew, you know, being a, a Hispanic kid growing up in, uh, in Los Angeles, like my heroes, you know, like culturally were these like luchadors, you know, like I didn't have a lot of media heroes, but, uh, there were luchadors on TV. I got to watch old El Santo movies and I got to watch Lucha Libre. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and so, uh, but the cool thing about, and why that resonates with me, uh, you know, I think in why I like comic books is that, that kind of clear, uh, delineation of good guy and bad guy. And the, the bad guys are bad and the good guys are good and there's, you know, battles are fought and, you know, it's, uh, and so, um, when it, you know, I, when it came time to do my own thing, I just, I had this idea about identity and de- destiny and, and I always like stories like, uh, the, you know, the story of Oedipus and um, you know, just that, uh, that like, uh, death in Tehran type story where, uh, no matter what road, you know, what road you take, you're going to meet your destiny. You know, there's that, what is that in Kung Fu Panda? I think they say that it's funny how often one meets their destiny on the road they choose to avoid it. And so, uh, I, I just had this kind of story like that in my head and I thought I could just make like a Lucha Libre story about that and kind of weave in some, you know, Mesoamerican kind of mythology, you know, and uh, weave in a little bit of like my tattooing kind of experience and that sensibility and weave in a little bit of my, um, you know, Catholic iconography obsession and weave in a little, a lot of my graphic design sensibilities. And so I really wanted the, the comic to feel and look like a, uh, 
an artifact from a time that never existed. This this uh, jet age Mexico is what I like to say. It's this very swanky Mexico that's all, all googie architecture and mid century modern furniture and. Uh, so a, a lot, I mean, the story itself, and I mean, you guys have read it. It's a very, very simple kind of, uh, story. You know, it's like the goal is pretty clear. Uh, <laughs> the mechanism to achieve the goal is all pretty clear. And so, um, it really becomes an exercise in style and execution. And, and, and uh, and so I really just wanted to do this thing that, that felt like you found an old Mexican comic from the sixties and you're like, Oh, I didn't know this existed. And you just thumb through it in that way that has that great, you know, silver age storytelling and, uh, and so uh I guess that's that's the long short answer. <laughs> I could get really long and and into it, but uh that that's kind of where I ended up with Lavano and and uh once I got uh, I mean originally he was just a pinup. I had just drawn one thing and I went to I went to a convention to go get like try to get some work and uh and more and more people were like gravitating toward that one pinup and like, "Oh, what is this?" I'm like, "Ah, it's just the story I have kind of in my head." And some some editors wanted to see what that was going to look like, and so I did like nine pages, and then I brought it back the next year, and they were like, "Oh, this is cool. We'd like to see the whole issue." And so, the whole issue, and so it it kind of, uh, you know, it, it germinated, it, it uh, gestated in my head for uh, for a good like three years, where I was just kind of sort of had an idea, and then more and more kind of things that fascinated me would just click into place perfectly, and so it it really just kind of organically happened, and. By the time issue one was done, I knew what the entire story was going to be. But starting issue one, I really just was kind of setting the pieces where they needed to go, start getting all the pieces in a starting point, and then just kind of letting them go. And then by the time I finished issue one, I saw the paths they were all taking and how they could intersect and how that could all be interesting. So, well, one of the things, um, one of the hooks from Lamano that immediately dug in deep with me and I'm, you've probably heard me say this before love the art but the color is very distinct and different like it's so southwestern to me that you you have the that that magenta e pink and that that um the green especially yeah. the, the that bluish tealy green it just it's it just screams authenticity and it was so surprising like you could have gone obviously with any kind of color scheme for that book but yet you settled on this or arrived at this very um appropriate uh color scheme for not only the subject matter of the book but you know now that i hear you talk about it the the um of of the old comics from your youth they that color scheme would have like if those colors were saturated back in the day they would have started to lend themselves towards those colors you picked yeah the, the coloring and I, I do hear a lot about the coloring which is which is cool uh it was um well it's amazing thank you I, thank you uh, i i um I wanted to limit my palette because you know back in the day when when colorists were cutting amberlith and, and putting screens down or you know uh, Zipatone screens down to, to delineate the different percentage builds. Um, you know, there was, there wasn't that many colors you could use. And, and, uh, being a tattoo artist, again, this is how this kind of, uh, works into this. Um, when, uh, you know, originally there was like five tattoo colors. And so, uh, and then, you know, as I started tattooing in the nineties, you know, we got all of these multicolor inks. And so you had what was called this color bomb tattoo thing, you know, and, and so everyone had like a, you know, a teal secondary light and a bright pink highlight. And then there was all this great shading and gradation in it. And it was fun for a while, but ultimately that, that fell back into a more uh, neo-traditional American style and things like, you know, um, Sailor Jerry and, and uh, Burt Grimm and these guys who, who had a, who had a, um, who had a limited palette were starting to get more in vogue because, uh, 
iconographically they're more impactful when you when you limit how thing you know how complicated things are and so um when i came time to do the comic and and color him uh that kind of uh like sick pea green that brighter pea green that that is his like his leggings and his cape uh that's like my favorite color and so i was like he has to be green uh and then you know being a a graphic designer i'm like what complements that you know uh, not compliments uh, you know like a like I'm giving you a compliment, a complimentary color type is, right, uh, right. you know, the other side of that is that, is that magenta pink. And then I realized like, Oh, this is a great, like Hispanic, uh, you know, cause, uh, color palette. You know I mean? Like my house is, is all kinds of bright colors. There's oranges and pinks and there's yellows and it's just a bright, happy place. And every, every home I've ever been in, you know, as a child has just been uh bright, happy Hispanic colors. And, um, and so when I saw those two together, I was like, that's, you know, that's the, that's what he gets to be. And so, I wanted to keep it down to like about nine colors. And then I also wanted um, three of those colors that are only used on him. That bright green, that magenta, and that um, that darker... No, the darker green I use for shadows. There's there's three colors on him that are only used on him. And uh, I think it might be the blue of his belt. and mm-hmm. uh, Or the blue of the flames on his belt and the blue of the uh, of the, the pupil on, on, his, on his mask. And so um, I like... Uh, I like ascribing a, a palette to a hero. He gets to be this and this only, and, and only this. So he's distinctive in every scene that he's in. You know, every, everything kind of complements it and, and 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 works well with it. But but those three colors are only him. And so now I'm left with like six or seven other colors that I get to use in the rest of the book to make everything up. And and uh, it was just kind of an exercise in restraint. You know, like how 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 little can I use to make to tell my story and. Um, and I think that when you when you're that limiting limited in your um, in the palette that you choose, uh, you really rely on the viewer to fill in the the naturalness of the scene. You know, when, when something's made, you know, the world isn't made up of you know six colors, but I think that people know what the world looks like, and so they're forced to kind of make distinctions and differentiations based on their own experience. And the more you can draw the viewer to fill in with their own experiences, the more emotionally involved they become. And so, um, yeah, so that was the, the two thoughts behind the limited color palette and that my choice of them were, uh, A, I wanted to be true to my Hispanic heritage and, uh, and B, I wanted to elicit a more emotional involvement from the viewer than just like, Oh, that's a building. Like they, they have to do a little more work than that. Cause, cause buildings aren't that color and buildings don't, don't look like that. Exactly. You, you have to, fill in the details and and so you you're more emotionally involved in it right and in the process you're putting your thumbprint on the world of lamano i mean it exists as in with those colors you've you've chosen you're defining this world as yours oh absolutely i mean i i i i I always say that my my job as an illustrator is to abbreviate reality not to reflect it and and um and i think that uh yeah i mean there's that frontispiece on on uh on the, in the first issue that, that speaks to this, this is a world that seems familiar, but it's not, you know, this isn't the world, you know, so let go of expectation, let go of, of, uh, any kind of naturalistic or realism that you, you want to cling to because you've got, you've got plenty of that in your real world. You know, um, I'm, I'm going to take you to someplace fantastic. And, and, uh, that's what I hope to do is just kind of take them in a place they've never been before. Well, you've succeeded. Thank you. I'd thank say. you. And you, you've obviously put a, a ton of thought into this. I just want to, one more question okay. on the on the on the color palette. How long did the process take? Did you did you decide on those colors fairly early into the first issue, or did it take some work to 
actually, you know, find the the ones that's sung um, next to each other. The green came out really early. That was like, this is my color. Like, literally, my art room is that color green. And so, like, that green's happening. And I found the PMS color that I liked and the CMYK approximation that that uh, I didn't want a green that was going to get muddied when it went to CMYK because, um, you know, because it doesn't live digitally. It's going to get printed. And I wanted something that was going to multiply well off of that uh, that background color because I have, like, scanned in sheets of distressed paper that I kind of create everything on that, I, that mm-hmm. I actually print everything kind of onto so that it all gets yellow to a degree. So I wanted something that wasn't going to get muddied. So I just kind of found the green that was going to make that happen. And then uh, I picked the magenta out and, um, and then I found that blue and I literally, the magenta, I just started, like I took that green swatch out of the PMS book and I started thumbing through, found the pink I wanted and like, that's it. And then, uh, and then I grabbed those two and found the blue and I had literally had the three PMS chips just sitting on next to my computer monitor. And then, um, I'm like, I definitely going to need a flesh color. I'm going to need a wood color. I'm going to need a, you know, like a, something to shade white with. And, um, and so I just kind of, it was pretty easy to get like the first, and I can't give you, I, I want to say maybe there's 12 colors, but you know, I want to say mm-hmm. like the first seven colors were kind of easy because I needed, needed flesh. I needed a shadow color. I needed a, something to shade white with. I needed a wood color. Uh, and then, um, I realized that I would need some kind of red, but I needed something that wasn't going to be close to the magenta that I had. And so I came up with that. And I, I would say that, um, all in all, uh, the first seven happened before I even started coloring. The last like four or five um, didn't happen until I was coloring the book and I realized there was a need for something. Like I, I need to be able, you know, like metal needs to be a color or, um, you know, like uh, the sky is going to need to be a color or something like that. And so, right. um, yeah, so uh, by the time half of issue one was done, it was it was solid and I haven't had to. I haven't had to add another color in in the subsequent issues, which has been nice. I, I've, and sometimes it's led to some interesting coloring choices where I'm like, well, I don't want to add another color. I, I don't. I want these all to be that same palette. So I've, uh, I've set some boundaries for myself, set some rules up, and I'm not going to break them. So um, yeah. So you did, you did the legwork initially, and now it's all falling into place. Oh yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That's, that's great, thank great, you. and it's all built on the green. I, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. That's the thing that just hit me in the back of the head. As soon as I opened the book, I was like, wow, look at these colors. Yeah. This is part of that was, was definitely, uh, you know, and like I said, it was, uh, me, you know, leaning into my Hispanic heritage and it seemed right for the characters. And, and there's a small part of me that is just sick of dark, dirty colors in, in, uh, Amen. Comic books. Yes. And, yep. uh, you know, Spider-Man's red and blue and it's amazing, you know, and Superman is red and blue and he's awesome. And, you know, like, uh, you know, not everything needs a mid-tone and a highlight and, you know, not everything needs to look like it's dipped in oil, you know, like. I, I gotta love uh, what, when, whenever you see like, and not to pick on Superman, yeah. but there, there, there were many, many issues of Superman where they would highlight his bulging muscles with white. Yeah. Yeah. Why? The fa- fabric does not highlight white. Unless, like you said, he's coated in oil, man. Yeah, that's, I, I literally saw a, uh, a DC comic. I think it was that Larfleeze. Uh, one shot that came out or the miniseries and everything is just what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) it has a fuck it has everything has a a hard white highlight on everything i mean the the rubble on the ground and and it's just the whole the whole comic looks like the they took that photoshop plastic wrap filter on it and just everything's highlighted and and, uh, (laughs) not the plastic wrap they should just get rid of that already like does anyone use that i I have i've never seen it used to good effect you know it's like or page girl 
What's that? the old the old page curl? Oh, um, yeah. oh god! Like, what was it? The <laughs> Kai's power tools. They used to have this page, oh, tur- page uh, curl filter, and like whenever you saw that, you knew you were in the in the the realm of the uh, the untested graphic design. Oh yeah, you see those filters <laughs> like straight up just use like filter everything. Like they they use the um, you know to me it's like using like as an art it's like as a as a fine artist it's like using paint right out of the tube. You know, just yep. cadmium red right out of the tube. <laughs> You see that in like college <laughs> coffee shops. You know, there's a very college uh, quality to painting when when people are like 20 and just discovering art, and it's just, you know, you look at that, and you're like, yep, cadmium red right out of the tube, you know. And so I, I see the uh, the uh, noise filter right out of the tube, you know, right right on someone's page, and they didn't even try to diffuse it or blend it or, or even screen back the opacity of it, you know. So uh, yeah, you know, I guess they're they're new, they'll figure it out or they won't, but. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm bummed when I see, um, big national, uh, there's a, there's a, a hospital here that has a, um, a cancer center and their, their clever advertising is one of the tropes in advertising that I despise with a passion is that kind of corrective advertising where they, they'll cross a word out in the headline, you know, like, uh, like oh, we were going to put this word in, but they have the word like the, the banner cancer center or whatever it is. And they have the word cancer crossed out, you know, cause they're getting rid of cancer. But they use that Adobe applied brush stroke, that really ragged one, and it's it's exactly that brush stroke. It's it's not it's not custom, you know. Like, and I'm like, literally, man, you can just make marks on a paper, scan them in, vectorize them, make them a brush stroke in Illustrator. It, it'll take you ten minutes. You don't have to use the Adobe preset brush stroke, you know. And it's this giant billboard, and and to me, it's just, yep, it's it's college art right there on a on a giant yeah. outdoor. Well, I think the advancements in in uh, printing, uh, like in tandem with the adva- advancements in digital coloring, not entirely beneficial to to comics, uh, because just because you can do full process doesn't mean you should. I love flat color. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and like you said, you, you have to develop some kind of restraint when you when you're only limited to a certain amount of colors uh, just you know these massive blends that they do today it it sometimes it hurts my eyes it's too well the the problem i think is that um i think everybody does too much or is trying to do mm-hmm. too much so they're trying to secure their jobs and i don't blame them and i so you get you know the the penciler's doing the best that he can, and the inker's just gonna render the hell out of it. And believe me, dude, I love inkers. Don't no, don't get me wrong. I, I said that once, and people it's like, <laughs> but um, and then the colorist gets in there, and he, you know, the the art's all there. You know, between the penciler and the inker, uh, more often than not, especially with the modern sensibilities of of comic art style, there's not a lot of heavy lifting to be done with the colorist. But he's got to make his mark. He's got to show that he brings something. You know, like what? Why? You know, some editor at some points be like, "Why am I paying this guy when I can just use the magic wand tool in the paint bucket?" You know, if he's dropping, you know, because at, at first glance, it kind that's kind of what it looks like. Guys like Alex Sinclair and Dave Stewart are doing. You know, like it looks like it looks like they're just filling shapes in. You know, but they don't realize the color choice and and uh, the restraint it takes to to say that no, this whole area is going to be this color with the softest of blends into it. You know, and and the mood that that creates, and so. Uh, rather than having the confidence of, of just, you know, putting their one thing, you know, out on the table, they, they just show all their skills off on everything. And so everything just gets a highlight and a midtone and a reflected light source on that. And, the, and it, and it gets to be too much, you know, especially when you have a nice, highly rendered, especially with today's like rendering sensibilities, the way that guys pencil and ink, or if they even get an inker. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I understand their compulsion, but I think that, I think that guys like Sinclair and Stewart are, are, uh, 
are confident. You know, it's like the chef who just just grills a steak, you know, grills this nice cut of meat and puts it out there with the simple greens on the side. He's like, they, I know that that's good. I don't need a sauce. I don't need some fancy side dish. Like, I, I know what I, I have confidence enough in the sim- simplest of ingredients. And I, I think that that's the attitude that the really good people have in, in comics with everything, in penciling, inking, right. and coloring. Yeah. And, uh, Stuart has worked in tandem with his creative teams for a while. So he knows how they think. They know how he colors and they'll, they'll hold back in certain areas and allow him to do his thing. Whereas, you know, in the, the mainstream books where it's high volume, high turnaround, there may not be a whole lot of communication between the, the color artist and the, you know, the other parts of the creative team. So they're just essentially working blind. Yeah. They might not even know who's going to be coloring their book from one week to the other. Right. You know, I mean, right. And, right. And, but when you know it's Dave, Dave Stewart, you know, you kind of. Yeah. You can, you, yeah, you can plan accordingly. Yeah. You can uh, have rest, rest easy knowing it's going to be handled. So you don't need yeah. to over, overcompensate by over rendering or over penciling stuff. And Dean White too. He's an amazing color artist. Yeah, I, I, yeah. He's he's got the the eye too. And you look at someone like uh, Dorothy Belair. I mean, she keeps it, oh yeah. yeah, keeps it kind of you know. It, when you think about the really good colorists, they they definitely um, they limit their palette and they keep it pretty flat. You know, they don't. Uh, there, I guess there are some good examples. I, I shouldn't shit on everybody, but I you know th- there are some examples of people who do get uh, kind of fancy, I guess, with their stuff. But I, man, I, I just think that. Uh, you know, simple is better kind of in, in all cases, you know, said to, right. you know, we're building iconography. We're not, uh, we're not shooting a movie here, you know, so. Uh, That's true. I mean, but when you have the luxury of months to work, like some of the European guys. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, then, Hey, go as crazy as you want. <laughs> but I mean, because in, in those cases too, the creative teams are relatively small. It, it may even be one person yeah. pr- producing the whole book. So yeah. So the, you, you, you know, the stage is yours, yeah. but uh, when you're working with a group, it's tough. Yeah, I've got the luxury of taking years between issues, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not really a luxury. It's just you already have your color palette. You don't have to worry about anything. Yeah, and I, and I have to, if I'm going to yell at the colorist, it's going to be a, an interesting conversation. So. <laughs> oh, man. So should we talk about some comics here? We're talking about uh, that. I mean, well, yeah, what have you been reading? You want to know what I've been reading? Yes. I'll tell you what I've been reading. I just, I can't wait to get into this with you. What I've actually been reading is, uh, is a couple of articles. Uh, one in Comics Alliance and one in the Wall Street Journal. Oh, oh no, no, no. Why are you doing this? Yes, we can. We can. Is this, right, well, is this the Comics off, Alliance off. article in response to the Wall Street Journal? It, it is. It okay. Yeah. I did not read, I have not read the Wall Street Journal. I have, um, I did read the, the Comics Alliance article this morning, yeah. but I didn't read what, uh, what 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 Janelle's what her reply was too. So I I'm you can fill me in on that. All I um, all I know is what she wrote about. Vince, did you read the actual Wall Street Journal article or just the Comics Alliance one? I went to read it, but as a, I'm not a subscriber, I only got about five sentences, and oh. then they blanked the rest of it out. You know, so, no, I, I looked I did the same thing, but then I looked it up on my iPhone, and, and apparently on my iPhone I was able to read the entire article. And there is also if you um. Uh, real quick aside, because I found this actually on um, on Imager. If Vince, I think if you and it's on it, I, I posted it to my timeline for reference. There is, I think, if you launch the um, Firefox web tools or web developer tools, that that console, you're able to block out the subscribe now for more pop up and read the entire article. 
Wow, you're devious. <laughs> that shit, I just yeah. Google searched it on my phone and was like, oh, it works on my phone. So, there you go. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so the, uh, the gist of the article was, uh, you know, um, and that's just it. Uh, so in my opinion, and, and this is, I, I will make this short since you guys haven't read the article. First of all, uh, I, I read the article that Janelle had wrote and, um, and was like, oh, there's got to be some serious, you know, meat to this article that, that Dixon wrote and, and for her to be able to you know, like parse all the stuff out of it and, and address it kind of, you know, and I want to say her article has got to be 25 to 30% longer than the actual article. And, uh, and I really didn't, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't get, uh, the point she, well, first of all, I want to say the points she makes are totally valid. Her, her arguments against the things that Dixon is kind of pro, uh, I, I agree with for the most part. Um, but the, the, uh, the case, I guess, that Dixon seems to be laying out or Dixon and, um, what's the other guy's name? It's, uh, Paul Rivak. Rivak. Yeah, Rivak. Yes. I, I'm going to say Rivik, even though I know it's wrong, but yeah, so Dixon and Rivik, um, Join the club. Yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they, they lay out, you know, the argument that they make is really, uh, it's really, it's like this loose net of ideas. It's not even really a case that they're making. And, and Janelle kind of dismantles it like, like they were arguing before the Supreme Court and then she goes in. I think she has a debate club background is what I'm saying. And, <laughs> and again, I don't disagree with anything that she said. I've just, I went, I was like, so I got into, the, so I found the article to read it and, uh, and I read it and I'm like, wow, that, this is kind of a dumb article. Like it did not, res- I, I personally didn't think it deserved that kind of uh, dressing down that they got from Janelle. It, it really, wow. it's, it's kind of a dumb article. It makes a lot of kind of stupid points and it, it just seems that way. It seems like, you know, it, yes, it's very jingoistic if you really want to look beyond that. But to me, it seems more like these are two dudes who reminisce at a time, that myth of the golden age, that time just before they existed, just before they were in the business when everything was perfect and when they were very important. I just missed that time in comics when I was super relevant to comics, and I'd really like to go back there. And that's all I kind of see is these kind of wistful old men who were like, yeah, remember when white dudes ran this industry? Well, fuck, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's really, you know, because, you know, they kind of gloss over the fact, I mean, they do mention, and, and to their credit, they, they do mention that uh, that Siegel and Schuster are immigrants, but we're talking about two very, you know, extremely Jewish immigrants who were making Jew, a very Jewish character in Superman, who wasn't about necessarily the American ideal, but about the immigrant ideal, the ideal immigrant in America, which is a different, which is different than, than, than kind of what they're preaching. And that, yeah, Superman really was fighting for the little guy initially before he took on world problems. They make a huge deal out of the Superman 900 story, which is like nine pages of a 40 page novel or a 40 page graphic novel. They, um, it, it really, they're, they're, they, they make the straw argument and, uh, and Janelle comes back with this like Supreme Court case dissertation after the fact. And it, it's a little one sided. And, and, and realistically, yes, it's dumb. They're, they're, they're them thinking that the business used to be full of conservative, proud Americans is bullshit because it's an artistic medium. Yeah. You can't tell me that a bunch of, you know, homosexuals and communists were, were filling up, uh, you know, I mean, not that I have any problem with either of those because I feel, I fit into, <laughs> and, you know, and homosexual communists. Yeah, exactly. I, I so, yeah. tried homosexuality and communism a little bit. I went to college. So, uh, <laughs> hold on, hold on one second because Jason's here. Yeah, I'm going to get him. What's up? Hootie hoo! Oh, there he is. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> What's up, fools? Better Nate than Lever, my buddy. <laughs> hey, man, you know what? I made a mistake of getting involved in local politics. So, like, oh. <laughs> well, local, nationwide, it's all a mistake. Yeah, sure. 
what we're we're talking about right now is the uh, Chuck Dixon, Paul Rivash um, article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal and the rebuttals and um, attacks and uh, replies that they received. So that's where we are right now. So Jason, me Jason, wow. what are you drinking? <laughs> Jeez. Well, first of all, what's up, Gonzo? What's up? Good. How you doing, man? Good. Dude, glad I'm you could make it. Let me get on the record here as saying that I have many, many Deadpool commissions, but yours is absolutely <laughs> stunning, dude. It is, dude. Thank you. Uh, I was super happy with the way that came out. It, it almost didn't get mailed to you. I almost did another one. Oh, nice. That. He sent me that. He sent me that picture on 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 through uh, Facebook Messenger. He's like, you, you think Jason's gonna like? So I had to show it to Vince. I was like, I didn't show it to anyone. I, I couldn't show it to Jason, but I knew it was coming. And I'm like, dude, that that's fucking gorgeous, man. Oh, I awesome. can't. That's yeah, for real, for yeah. real. That was the first time I drew Deadpool as well. I just I had drawn the cut character. I'm like, yeah, I'll those together for wood. Yeah, you were easy, Jason. Uh, it was uh, Chris who ended up being kind of hard mm. figuring out what, what I was gonna draw for him. Ah, uh, he's dead to us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's written out by choice. Oh, uh, yeah. Dude, you have quite the radio voice. You got like a sexy voice. He does. Yeah. I, I'm post-con. Like, I, I'm still uh, reeling from having spoken for uh, five solid days. So I, I don't normally sound this way. Nice. Oh, thank you. Uh, what am I drinking? I'm drinking Diet Dr. Pepper. Oh, yeah. All right. So I'm the alcoholic tonight. <laughs> yeah. Drinking up for all of us, David. Yeah, sorry about that. Those are my best so J- Jason, what do you think of uh, the article we were talking about? I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Okay, then. <laughs> I don't have Apparently, any Apparently, um, uh, Chuck Dixon um, is, is longing for the days before he was even writing comics because a lot of the comics he wrote, um, which is what – I agreed with in, in Janelle's article. He, he's over here talking about there was, I, I became aware of it because on, there, there's an article on Comics Alliance where she basically, uh, takes apart the, is, is it an op-ed or was it an actual, was it an interview? What, what was going on in the Wall uh, Street Journal? How did they talk the, to The Wall Dick? Street Journal article is by them. It's just an op-ed and, and literally, um, it's, it's a pretty, uh, Fox News esque, just ham fisted, uh, way of promoting their own book. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're just setting up, um, uh, what they see is wrong with the world and how their comic is the solution for it. Um, so it, it's, it's totally self-serving and transparent in that because you get to the end where they're like, but our book, you know, so here's everything that's shitty and, and wrong with comics and, and here's why, why our book solves it. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and it, and it really it it reads that way. Like I was saying before, it is just just this kind of you know straw argument for why their their book is a solution for everything that's wrong in comics, and why everything that's wrong in comics is is it's not that that uh, that golden age that was going to make them super important. Uh, they got in when people were a little more progressive, and 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 their use of the term you know moral relativism, and, and their use of a lot of um, political and sociological. Uh, like nomenclature seems a little off. It's very kind of, you know, not even Fox News ish. It's, uh, you know, and it, and it's all, and it all wraps up in this very self-serving, um, you know, but check out our book. And, uh, and so you see it for what it is at the very end of it. And, and like I said, it, I, I don't think it, it, uh, deserved the attention that it got. It was just, um, you know, it's, uh, 
it's a crazy guy on the street yelling about how the end is nigh. You know, uh, once, once you make the decision to strap the sign to yourself and stand on the corner, there's, there's no arguing somebody out of that position, you know, like you're, you're not going to show them the error of their ways. And I think that, uh, like a lot of crazies, I think he would have just been, this would have been best served by ignoring it. And I think that, that, uh, the length and breadth of the argument that Janelle pre- presented, although articulate and well-spoken and, 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 and correct in my opinion, uh, really just did nothing but serve to, to draw attention to a project that ultimately would have just faded away. Um, it had, we just left it all alone. Okay. I'm getting caught up here. So I read the article. Um, but you're saying that Janelle, I assume you mean Janelle Aslan, uh, yes. the, who, who's, I guess, relatively notorious of late. Uh, she, she wrote some, something somewhere in retort to this. Yes. yes. Comics Alliance. Ah, I see. Or my uh, okay. timeline. Uh, okay. I, so I haven't read that, but, um, yeah, I mean, the op-ed, I don't have much to say about it. It's pretty, it, like you said, if, I guess if you know who Chuck Dixon is, then it reads like a Chuck Dixon thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, and the, you know, they're kind of uh, longing for the days of the Comics Code Authority. I mean, I think we can all agree that that, that the fervor that drove us to put that stamp on comics is, is probably best forgotten. And, and, uh, and having that stamp as a reminder of that kind of consensus terrorism, uh, having that be gone uh, is probably good for creativity in comics as, as a whole. I was just going to say that that was the, the major thing that killed creativity in comics was the, the code. Yeah. And there's because some who, though. so many limitations on what they could and couldn't do that they were pretty much corralled into a certain direction with this insane self-policing non-existent really right. i mean there was there was they they may have have initially had a, a a group of people who would overlook things but after a while i'm sure they were just like rubber stamping shit like crazy yeah, they, yeah. you know just let it go yeah and, and i think it was um i mean they, they were fighting for survival they had to acquiesce to something because mm-hmm. the comics were not doing good at that time anyway and uh the threat of some kind of government involvement or interference would, would have probably was probably an existential threat, and so they had to do something, and and the the code became it, and and uh, yeah, and I and I just uh, their their uh, their reminiscence of it, I think, is is completely misplaced, and and I I, and I, I cringe think- any time people try to debate the uh, political and. Uh, Moral inclinations of a fictional character um, that they didn't create. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. especially ones that have been around for seventy plus years. In the case of Batman and Superman, because I mean, ultimately they are going to be reflective of the writers yeah. and the time, right? I mean, you go back I'm just going to gonna say yeah, that Neil Adams yep. when he wrote Green Arrow and 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 the hard traveling hero stuff. I mean. That was a message of the time, and he reflected his personal views. When Larry Hama wrote The Nam, he wrote it from the perspective of a dude that went to Vietnam. He didn't write it from the perspective of someone who was anti-Vietnam. I'm sure the book would have read much differently if that were the case. Um, that's just human nature. I mean, if you think about what the the 100-plus, if not 200-plus people that have written Batman and then another 200 that have written Superman, I mean, you had liberals, conservatives, you had hippies you had uh yuppies you had neoconservative you know what i mean I, I just i think that these characters are in many ways um ciphers for the people put in charge of 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 portraying them in any given moment and uh that can be good or bad right depending and i think the best is when they're not really portrayed as any particular uh political bent at least for me i, I don't particularly like when politics get 
get mixed in with my superheroes. Um, there are exceptions, right? I mean, Watchmen, you know, V for I, I think you could it could be done in an interesting way. But again, those those are finite stories. They 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 exist in those worlds to to interact with them, and so their politics helps flesh them out as characters. But I think a legacy character can't be political, I guess, or shouldn't be. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, the characters aren't putting the words into their mouths themselves, right? The writers do that. The creative people. So, of course, these characters are going to mirror the status quo of the time in which they're written. But I think Dixon, um, I, I sympathize with the guy because there's a period, as you age, there's a period of, of, of time where you look back and say, this is where everything went wrong. I've done it myself. As I'm approaching 50, I mean, comics are not the same to me as they were when, when I consumed nearly everything from every publisher. You know, I just could not get enough. And that's that's my golden age. So you base it on your wonder years in comics and say, why can't they be like that? Because that time is past. Absolutely. And, and I think and, that uh, there's a point in your life, too, where you just you're not important to society as far as a you're not a target for for any mechanism anymore like right because He's certainly from, out of the loop. from the, yeah. the moment you're born until you're about 35 40 the there are huge machines of industry that are focused their attention on you and want your attention back on their products and services and as you get you know in your 40s and stuff suddenly you know they assume that you've made all all you're you're entrenched in your decisions they're not going to sway anything, and so they start focusing on the young people. And it's a hard, it's a hard place to be when you look back and you're like, oh, I'm I'm no longer important to marketers anymore. Nobody wants my attention anymore. You know, pretty girls don't look at me anymore. And like I'm I'm just the guy holding open the door. I I, I am a doorstop. I'm not a nice guy that's holding open the door that can get smiled at. Or you know, it's a you know, it's, it's a loss of virility in a, in a, to a degree. And I think that uh, and I think that they're lashing out against that 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 time when they were important to comics. And, uh, and, and using it to sell books in a very transparent way. So. Right. Right. Yep. Preach. But I, I think one of the things we've learned from this and many other, uh, commentaries on the state of comics is the, the character of Superman is malleable as hell. You can do pretty much anything you want to do with Superman. You can take any stance and speak through him, you know, project that, those opinions through Superman. He is, that's why he is one of the best. Uh, and most um, resilient characters ever created for comics. The, the the possibilities with Superman are endless. You you can you can take a political stance through him. You can like we talked about the immigration. You can take a social stance through Superman. You can't do that with every character. There 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 are some that lend themselves very well to these multi uh, uh, topical uh, approaches. I, I do. That's, that's Superman. I do think that um, that the politicalness of Superman comes in the fact that. Uh, he is an ideal. He is uh, an aspirational character, and so I think he's reflective of how we view the best of who we are. And I think that um, when you get marginalized, and that that I- ideal, you know, paradigm that he is shifts away from what you view as a paradigm of the best of who we are, you feel a little, uh, you know, a little jilted. So I, mm-hmm. again, I understand they're, they're lashing out against that. You know, this this man who is the paradigm, the best of what we are. I kind of don't feel like we anymore. So I'm, you know, I'm a little pissed. I'm going to write an article. I'm going to write a comic book and, uh, hopefully I can, you know, get you to buy the comic book that, that, that I wrote. So, you know, sorry. I want to know, who, who, he, I want to know who he knows that he was able to get an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal though. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? 
It's a hot button topic. I think he just, I think he went in there. Honestly, my opinion on that is that he probably was just like, I have, I have an article about how comics are, are being ruined by liberals. Yeah. And I think, I think that was enough to sell it, yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah, nice. We need to transition to like transgender porn comic talk now. All right, let's do it. <laughs> I've got not read a whole lot of trans. Vince, comics. start us off. <laughs> um, I would love to, but it's not uh, transgender porn comics, no. although there, there, there could be a little transgender in it. I, I had a hell of a time this weekend reading something that I initially read when they came out, um, 94, 95. And uh, filed it away in the back of my mind as being a really, really good comic. And then, you know, moved on, as we all do. And I revisited them this weekend because they were recently collected in a, a really nice uh, trade paperback from D.C. called uh, Jonah Hex, Shadows West. And what this collects is the Two-Gun Mojo, Riders of the Worm and such, and the Shadows West miniseries written by Joe R. Lansdale. Great horror writer. Illustrated, get this, by Timothy Truman. Yes. Scout, Wilderness Saga, uh, Conan, Grateful Dead Comics, and on and on and on. Yeah, Hawkworld. Um, Inks by the great Sam Glansman. All right. Sailor Story, Lonely War of Willie Schultz, and many, many, many war comics. Have any of, have any of you guys read these? The Jonah X comics? Yeah, th- these particular miniseries. No, I did not. Sorry, I don't think. Oh, so. they're they're amazing, and and the approach is really unique because Lansdale had a uh, childhood affinity for Batman and Jonah Hex. He said, "You know what? I'm a, I want to be a writer, and I really hope one day that that I get to to maybe write comic books." And his his prose took off, and so he became noted notable for a certain type of story. Uh, most, more often than not horror. And, and one day he, he, uh, had a situation where he was offered Jonah Hex and he took it. And, um, he calls, um, both Batman and Jonah Hex honorable in the introduction. And I have to agree with that, um, to a certain extent. Hex, yes, he fought on the wrong side in the Civil War. Or, or the losing side, I should say. And, um, not because he had an affinity for slavery, but just because the South was his birthplace. That's where he was from. So, so he fought for the South, uh, for no other reason. Uh, he, 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 the only, um, political reason he had for doing so was because he was defending his, his birthplace and, and took the side of the people who, uh, who made the rules there. So, um, uh, a victim in a, in, a, in a sense of this unfortunate war, but he did his best to, to represent. Um, so, so Lansdale, uh, jumps at the chance to write the character, uh, and in, in preparation for the stint on the, the, the mini, he went back and reread, uh, a, a large chunk of that John Albano, uh, and Fleischer stuff. And, and he was amazed that those, those weird westerns weren't all that weird. Uh, he he remembers them being you know laced with the supernatural, and that just wasn't the case. So conceptually, he approached this series not to write Jonah Hex not as he was portrayed in the past, but as his childhood memories of those series portrayed it. That's pretty cool. So so he infused these stories 
with um, zombies and uh, eldritch horrors straight out of Robert E. Howard or uh, my boy, H.P. Lovecraft. There's ghosts in here. There's there's undead circus freaks uh, and, and more. And I got to say, I love the Palmiati gray Jonah Hex and I love the Fleischer and Albano stuff. But having reread these are nice and fresh in my mind. I got to say, I like this approach the best. As you would expect mm-hmm. with me being being a horror fan. Um, so uh, the first mini is called Two Gun Mojo. And I'll tell you, if they filmed the Jonah Hex movie, if they used Two Gun Mojo as the blueprint for the Jonah Hex movie, it would have did a hell of a lot better. They should make a did. Jonah Hex movie. <laughs> they should. They should. <laughs> but when, when Mojo opens, Jonah is in dire straits, indeed. He's uh, been fitted for a noose. By, by the notorious Trawick brothers because he killed their sister. That's not nice. Turn, no, well, he just didn't kill her. It turns out she was trying to bushwhack him. And our boy Jonah, being Jonah, retaliated in his usual way and, and shot her in the forehead. And as, as they're putting the noose around him, they're, they're like, you killed our sisters. Our sister, you, you didn't have to spit tobacco on her as she was suffering. He's like, I, I was aiming for the hole I shot in her forehead. So Jonah, Jonah's a douche. He's a nasty man in this series. He, you know, he he's not your typical hero. He does heroic things, but he has a very very dark side. And um, the the opening scene is great. It would have been one of those stunners if if the movie followed it. Jonah's hanging from a noose, and he's he's dying. His face is turning blue. He's dying, and um, in walks Slogo Smith. This Santa Claus looking overweight bounty hunter, he's balding and he's trying to do Jonah a solid and he's trying to shoot the noose and, and get Jonah down. He kills one of, one of the Trawick brothers. He shoots all the horses in the area. And meanwhile, Jonah's swinging and he's losing all his air and he's dying even, you know, leaping, crawling closer to death. And Slogo eventually shoots him down. But, uh, Jonah's like, hey, you missed a horse. You better get that one. <laughs> so uh, the two head into town. So over the course of this story, Jonah Hex makes a man lick shit off another man's boots. <laughs> he, he helps a beautiful squaw in trouble. He's framed for the murder and sentenced to be hung by a corrupt judge. He didn't murder these people, but, you know, damn it, the judge wants Hex off the table. So here's a good opportunity. And he's drawn upon by one of the greatest shootists ever, Wild Bill Hickok. Mm. Albeit in zombie form. Oh, like, whoa. Huh? Zombie Wild Bill Hickok. Yeah. How the hell did this happen? Enter the bat-faced Doc Williams. This guy's an alchemist, physician, paraphysicist, and creator of the Sweet Brown Tonic. Now, the Sweet Brown Tonic goes something like this. I'm going to put my Jason hat on mm. here for a second. If you got the piles, you've done too many miles, you're hurting the chest, you need rest. Down in the back, pain in the sacroiliac, well, none of that means nothing if you got what you need. And what you need is Doc Williams swigging good and honey smooth, sweet brown business. Damn. You know what this, you know what this stuff is? It's part dead flesh, powdered blowfish bladder, pulverized monkey testicles, a little bit of piss, and a whole lot of black magic. Just a little bit of pissed off. Hail Satan hoodoo. And what this stuff does, it turns perfectly good city folk into mindless, easily controlled zombies. 
creatures of which Doc Williams gladly takes control to do his foul bidding. So he crosses paths with Jonah, and Wild Bill gets to jump on old Jonah, and they give him the elixir. They want to turn Jonah Hex, they want to pickle him, turn Jonah Hex into a zombie. And they put him in an actual pickle barrel. But I'll, I'll leave the rest uh, to your uh, perusal. I won't tell you what happens. Um, this story is insane. There's a cigar-smoking dwarf that wears a pumpkin, a carved-out pumpkin as a mask. There's there's a fat zombie whore that that works for uh, Doc Williams. You got a uh, a circuit sideshow freak, uh, eight foot tall, painted Indian called String Bean, and they follow this this doctor around in his traveling, uh, you know, elixir show. It's it's insane. Um, but the, 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 I think the art is perfect. If, if, um, aside from John Severin, I can't name too many artists who possess the absolutely perfect style, uh, evocative of the Western genre. Timothy Truman is that dude. His, his style just lends itself so damn well to like this. You know, I'm reading the book and I can feel the, the dust in the back of my throat. I can smell the horse shit. That's pretty powerful stuff. To, to throw some lines on a paper inked by a great Sam Glansman, you know, and, and make some people feel, your reader feel that, that, you know, they're in the old west. You're in Texas, bitch. And it's hot and people are smelly and blood is flowing and, and Jonah's an ugly son of a bitch. It just, it all clicks. It all works. These are some of like the best western comics I think I've ever read. But in terms of the, I mean, the art's great, but Lansdale's descriptions and his dialogue are are amazing. There, there's a page, there's a one part I want to read you from um, Shadows West. Jonah is again framed for 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 killing people, but he didn't really do it. He was just defending himself. So he gets off. The judge is like, "This is crazy. I know who Jonah Hex is. I know these bastards who done this to him." You guys are no good. Hex was just defending himself. I'm gonna let him off. So he leaves the courtroom and he's, he's, uh, he's going outside and the rest of the family members from the guys Jonah killed, they're all waiting for him. And their sister's a whore. And you could tell from the dialogue between the judge and the whore that they have some kind of prior, uh, previous, uh, transactions were made, let's just say, right? And so Jonah draws on the family and kills them all. And one of the brothers is a terrible shot, ends up shooting his sister in the back of the head. So, so the whore's dead. And, and, uh, the, the judge goes, God damn it, case dismissed. And his, uh, his buddy says, but judge, there ain't no, ain't no, never been no trial. You can't dismiss it. Dismissed anyway. And get that whore buried. Dead whores make me sad. God damn, you'd think a whore don't win the duck. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all dialogue like that. And uh there's a running gag with Jonah Hex's scar. Whoever asks him how he got it, he tells them a completely different thing. He'll he'll tell a kid, you know, toothpick injury. He'll he'll tell another person, you know, a a rabid beaver got me or something. And it it, it every so often another person will walk up to him and ask him how he got that scar and he, he comes forth with a different um response but one of the more notable things about these books is the second miniseries writers of the worm and such caused dc a whole lot of headaches because 
um, Lansdale done crafted two characters in the story out of Edgar and Johnny Winter. <laughs> and he was, let's just say, not complimentary at all. First of all, they're Hellspawn. They were the product of an evil subterranean worm and a woman who was raped. So they're albinos. They're, they fornicate with animals. They're not too smart hmm. on top of it. You know, and so. Other than that, Ed- Mrs. Lincoln, the play was great. So it's a, no, it's a kid-friendly book. No, Edgar and Johnny sued DC for defamation of character. Mm. And, uh, I don't know how long the lawsuit went on. It was eventually, uh, DC was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing under the, the parody, um, you know, abilities we have to, to parody well, certain. So they didn't take that trial to St. Louis, then I take it. No, and it, they were, they, they refiled and they went, it went to trial again and it was thrown out a second time. So, uh, yeah, but I remember back in the day when these things came out, there was a huge stink over, over these books because, uh, you're, you know, the artistic license is one thing, but these characters are dead on Edgar and Johnny Winter. I mean, visually, they're, they're albinos. They're, they're, they, they physically resemble the characters, their pair, parody, parodies, parodying, and they do very, very nasty things. See, that's, that's not even half the evidence that Tony Twist brought to trial, and he still somehow won. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I, yeah, that's true. I mean, all he had, all he did was share a name. He didn't look anything like the actual. Oh yeah. no, no, these these characters were were designed dead on to be Edgar and Johnny, and, and there's a whole lot of um, elements of music in these series. The 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 second one, there's a ranch hand who will only hire you if you become culturally aware. You have to write poems and sing songs on the range and uh, profess your love of the arts to the ranch owner or he won't hire you. And, and there's an Oscar Wilde uh, tie-in to the second story. It, this crazy stuff. This is These are my favorite kind of comics where the, you could tell the writer said, why not? No idea is too outlandish. Um, the, the characters are so far overboard that, that it's, just, it's just so enjoyable to read and when you got an artist like timothy truman and sam glansman at the helm man it's just gorgeous so dc just published this it's a massive tone you got two how big two five issue miniseries one four issue miniseries so you're talking 14 issues i would say 400 pages Hmm. 24.99 get out of here that's not 24 yep and it's on that that old style toothy, not glossy paper. It's beautiful. I'm on that. Brilliant. I'm on it. Yeah, yeah, that, great. I, if it was more than that, it'd probably just be cheaper to get the issues from the minis. But this this True. sounds like a pretty decent deal. That's a good yeah. part too. It, like I said, violent. There are um, you could feel H.P. Lovecraft in the second story. Like when I say worm, I'm not talking worm. I'm talking. Gil Kane designed, it actually looks like Gil Kane designed the worm. Uh, straight out of Conan. It, it's a gigantic eldritch horror from, from, from hell. It, it's beautiful. I'm trying to find out who did the coloring on this, cause the coloring's pretty notable too. Oh, Sam Parsons did the color, and Todd Klein lettered it. Yes. It's all around I remember, great. I remember the house ads for these, for these books. And Joan is actually nice to a woman in this. 
he he treats her like a dude, like, and she <laughs> she responds accordingly. No, she she, she welcomes the fact it's like that, that Jonah Hex. Yeah, <laughs> uh, much more violent Jonah Hex than we've come to. Well, the the more recent series, this Jonah is shoot first, ask ask questions later. Nice, yeah. just, beautiful. I, I, I just want my hex collection. No doubt. Yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice. Now, since I jumped in late, did we uh, did we get uh, the tales about the Mister uh, Mister Gonzo's passion project, and when we're getting more? Oh, okay. <laughs> no, we talked a little bit about it, but we didn't get into. Um, so, uh, four is, is penciled. It's, it's drawn, I should say. Uh, I'm working on, uh, inking and coloring now. Um, I'm dropping it off at the printer July 14th and I'll have it back the, uh, that Friday, which is, um, the Friday that I'm leaving for San Diego Comic Con. So, um, I'm hoping to get them mm-hmm. in my stores before I drive to San Diego. Um, but, uh, they might, uh, they're definitely available in San Diego and they'll definitely be available on my store online soon. So I'll, I'll definitely drop some in the mail for you guys as soon as I have them back Woot-woot. from the printer. But, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it is like legitimately done. I just, uh, logistically, I couldn't get it done, um, before I left for Phoenix, which I really wanted it for Phoenix, but, um, I got jammed up with some other projects on that. Um, yeah, that, that's the, the story of my life with this thing is every time I, I have a good open clip ahead of me to, to do some work on the, um, on the uh, the comic, uh, something comes up that I just can't say no to, you know that that ultimately pays my bills and allows me to continue to do a comic. And, and uh, there's a there's also another little um, situation I may or may not. Uh, I, I think in the back matter on issue four, I'm going to explain kind of what happened between two and three. Uh, there was a, a a kind of dream project that uh, almost happened uh, that I that I had to walk away from, and and so because I have all of the uh, the artwork that goes with that. I think I'm just going to put it in my comic and say, here, here's what I almost did and, and uh, let my fans at least have that. So cool. The inevitable collected edition. Uh, yeah, it's going to be, um, I'm going to do, I don't know which is going to come first, but I want to do a hardcover, um, like a slightly oversized, like maybe golden age size book that has like a, uh, an embossed championship belt on the front of it. Um, oh, and it's like, you know, really nice. And that'll be, the, that'll be the six issues, uh, definitely collected there. Um, the trade paperback, I'm going to do, um, a flip book. I'm doing the first, all six issues in English and then flip it over and have all six issues in Spanish. And, uh, and then in the, in the middle, I've got some pinups coming from, uh, Armand Villavert who does, uh, Gladstones. He's done a pinup for me. Um, Joe Benitez has signed up to do a pinup for me. Nice. nice. Um, trying to think who else is on the list. This guy named Jason Krager, who's an amazing artist. Uh, he's done, he did some fill in work at, over at Top Cow for a while. He's working on a project now that I'm actually putting out through my company. I think we just talked about it today, but, um, yeah, so I've got a few, I've got a few projects coming out from my company that aren't solely me that are, that are going to be out this year. Uh, kind of one of them debuted in Phoenix, uh, and then a couple of them are going to debut in, uh, San Diego Comic Con. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to stick with guys who are like-minded that have a very, um, similar, uh, sensibility, not necessarily execution wise, but like, I don't want a bunch of guys who, you know, draw like me or, or like Kirby, I should say. Uh, I just want guys who have a similar, uh, sensibility of, of comic book storytelling. Uh, and so, um, I've got, uh, I've got uh, Ryan Wynn, who's a former anchor for DC and Marvel. Uh, he's putting two books out through me. And then uh, my friend Craig is putting up a book out. I probably have Ryan do a pinup for that comic as well. Um, he's he is a hell of a penciler when he, he's, he's a damn good anchor, but he's, he's he is he's becoming a very 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 good uh, penciler. And uh, his two projects are are fun 
you know, again, they're, they're comics that, uh, that don't get dark and mean gritty. You know, they, they look like they belong with my line, even though they don't exactly look like what I do. Awesome. Cannot wait. Oh, thanks. Giddy beyond belief. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, did you guys see that? Uh, there's, there's a page I drew for issue four that is now the single best comic book page I think I've ever drawn. It's that, uh, <laughs> I love hearing that. <laughs> it's that one with the three belts on it and then the three guys or the, the six, you know, the, the three panels of guys wrestling. Did you guys see that page I posted a little while ago? Um, it's, uh, it, I posted it and, and I, as soon as I finished it, I'm like, Oh, I got to share this. Like it, it's not very spoilerific, but it definitely has a little, you know, it gives away some plot detail of four, but I just had to post it and, and and everybody loved it. And, and at Phoenix Con, I had tons of people coming up and going, "Dude, that page with the belts is amazing." I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty proud of that one page." Um, so it, yeah, issue four is great. It's probably it is my favorite issue so far. They just keep getting better, but um, but specifically that one page with the the three championship belts on it is fantastic. So um, if I do you know, say so myself, I guess <laughs> not to toot nice. my own horn, but uh, you know, no, that's that's good. Some horns need tooting. No, yes, you. sir. Yeah. So, How yeah. was uh, Phoenix Comic Con? Uh, it was amazing uh, and super busy. <laughs> um, I uh, I had no help. My fiance um, is at a uh, piercing convention in Las Vegas, so I. Uh, no way. Yeah, she uh, she works at a piercing studio out here. Um, so they had their con- their convention. Up? What's that? Are you pierced up? Um, I have uh like pretty big uh pretty large holes in my ear. Um, mm-hmm. I just have uh they're three quarter uh three quarter inch holes, and then um. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's the only, I used to have, I mean, I have my septum pierced, but I don't wear it. I haven't worn it since my daughter was born. And, um, so that's been a while, but I could still get a ring for it. it. Uh, I've, if you, if you really <laughs> have pictures, <laughs> I have, I do have a Prince Albert if you really want to know. Hilarious. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, I've got, to, so I have three piercings that I wear constantly. Uh, over time though, I have had like, you know, eight or nine ear piercings. I've had, uh, my eyebrow pierced. I've had my tongue pierced. I've, you know, I've had a few things pierced, but, uh, I'm down to just the earrings, you know, that are stretched out. And then, um, I've got, uh, I've got the PA and then my fiance, however, she works at a piercing studio. So she's got four tiny studs in each nostril, her septum pierced, her upper and lower lip pierced, her vertical bridge, which is the space between your, um, between your eyebrows. She's got that pierced. Um, she's got huge stretched ears. I think they're like at an inch right now. She has, Conch piercings and cartilage piercings in both ears. Yeah, she's she's pretty pretty metallic at this point. She's a she's like a Soriyama um, machine these days. But uh, yeah, so she she works at a studio and um, was attending that convention. So I had uh, zero help because my brother actually runs the uh, the uh, anime department at the Phoenix Con. So um, he's the only other person I could have roped into helping me, but he was busy running his own department. So. Um, so yeah, I didn't get, get, didn't get out very much, uh, but, uh, 88,000, or no, I'm sorry, 77,818 people showed up to that convention. And, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was huge this year. It almost doubled in size, like floor space wise. And, uh, like uh, Dark Horse and Top Cow were there, um, in, in kind of full force, um, which is, is getting kind of big for us. Uh, like Aspen was there and Boom was there. Um, I got to, uh, got to see some friends of mine that I know, like, uh, Eric Esquivel, the guy who's run, writing the, the Loki book, the Ragnar Rock and Roll. Um, yeah, it's it, a great book. He's a friend of mine, him and, and Hannah, the, the letterer that he dates, uh, not, I'm sorry, she's way beyond just a letterer, but she does lettering for comics and, and is his girlfriend. And so they were in town, I got to see them. Uh, I got to, uh, drop by and see Mr. Tom Scholey and Ed Pisker and drop some comics and prints off with them. And I got, uh, I got, 
copies of the free comic book day hip hop family tree nice. and the uh with random doodles throughout it like ed just goes through that thing and and puts random shit in there before he hands them out so <laughs> uh, i've got someone's phone number i don't know who it is but <laughs> it's in there and then uh, tom got got me a copy of gi joe transformers which uh which is fan fucking tastic it is right <laughs> yeah uh which is great and then i got sketches from both of them and uh yeah, then on, I think Sunday, I ended up, uh, Ed and I just ended, there's like a green room they have for the guests, um, for lunch and stuff, and I ended up having lunch with, uh, with Ed, uh, who I'd never met. I've met Jim and Tom last year, and, uh, uh Jim Rugg and Tom Shirley last year, and, uh, those guys and I kind of have similar sensibilities to things we do, you know, so we, we got along pretty well, and, and, uh, but I'd never met Ed before, so this year, uh, what was really cool is when I went to give Tom his print, um, he, Ed Pisker was like, oh shit, you're that guy. You, you do that Lucha Libre thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you want some? So I gave him copies and he's like, oh, I've heard of you. And just the idea that, that Tom or Jim had spoke about me to Ed was kind of, kind of blew my mind. Nice. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I got to have lunch with him and we just talked hip hop for like an entire half hour, uh, which is, which he's the guy you want to talk hip hop to. For like, sure. <laughs> like old school, you know, um, yeah, we were talking about how raising hell, uh, established rap as a genre as a genre you know it 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 went from being what could have been this uh the brooklyn or this uh bronx based equivalent to like skiffle music you know like this this kind of fad that had happened for a couple of years and, and raising hell really established it as a, a viable genre in music and and uh, that's kind of when everything changed and and then um, i think we talked a little bit about how cool modi doesn't get quite the props that he deserves and um <laughs> Cause I love Cool Modi, man. That guy oh, is amazing. Who's in the Treacherous Free Three, for God's sake? You know, he's, that's, that's first generation rap, if not, you know, one and a half generations of rap. So, and then he was talking about how, um, those old school guys like, uh, you know, uh, Cool Herc and, um, Curtis Blow and I think, uh, Africa Bombada all had, uh, Caribbean roots, which I hadn't really, you know, I hadn't really pegged before, hadn't thought about before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just a really interesting guy to talk hip hop to and, uh, and uh, I, I, I was a little out of my Twelve while I'm giddy for Heroes Con next week. Oh yeah, dude, he's 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 awesome. Yeah, just just ask him about anything hip. Just start him on a conversation. Ask him what he thinks about Cool Modi, and then you'll just you know go from there. And and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a master's class in hip hop. So um, and, and a great lunch. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I got I to see some some best posse albums of all time. What's that? I want to get his thoughts on the best posse albums of all time. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, like, like, uh, like the Lynch Mob or, you know, uh, Flip Mode Squad, uh, you know, with, with uh, the, cause, cause it seems obligatory that anytime, uh, a hip hop artist gets, uh, so much of notoriety, they have to have a posse album for, for their crew. Yeah. You know, there's, I, I thought of like 900 questions I should have asked him when, after I walked away from the, cause he had a panel to go to. So he was being kind of quick. We just had like about a half hour together. And then as I walked back to my booth, I'm like, Oh man, I should have asked him, you know, about, uh, this, that or the other thing. And, and, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's one of those things where you, you meet someone you're a fan of and talking about something, you know, uh, kind of away from, you know, like, you know, we weren't talking art, we were talking, you know, hip hop, which was, was interesting. Um, and then, and then, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to have that conversation. And then, uh, and I was a little frazzled just from having, that was like, you know, day three of the con. So I was a little frazzled, but, uh, I got to meet, uh, got to meet Len Wein too, talk to him for a wow. bit. Um, just, uh, I, I just literally thanked him for everything he's done for comics. Like I, I didn't even get specific. I was just, you know, thank you for everything you've done for comics. He's like, oh, okay. You know, he's a super nice guy. Um, got to give him a copy of my comic. He seemed to like it. Um, 
yeah, uh, Joe Benitez was there. We get to hang out a bit. That guy's always fun. Um, and, uh, talked to Roman Dirge for a while, which was cool. Um, we had met before, but I think he was, wasn't, uh, didn't, re- wasn't going to remember it. <laughs> I think he'd, he had enjoyed a couple of beverages the first time we met, but, <laughs> but it was good to meet him when he, where he was like, Oh yeah, I, I kind of know you. So, um, but yeah, I mean the con itself is just, uh, huge now. Um, but not like San Diego huge where, uh, it's getting overwhelmed with non-comic things. It's comics are still very much a part of the convention that happens. It's a, it's a good place to talk to creators, you know, um, they keep the, uh, the autograph lines, um, for, you know, like sea level celebrity kind of off to the side and upstairs. And so you can enjoy, you know, walking around and talking to Brian Augustine or Len Wein or, you know, uh, guys like that. Uh, Don Rosa was there. I think I said hi to him real quick. Like it just, yeah, there's, uh, just, it's a good place to, to interact with creators. You know, they're, they're not being mobbed. Um, you know, they're, they have little lines you can hang out, uh, you know, I talked to the guy who wrote the fifth Beatle. Um, that guy oh, was, nice. was kind of awesome. Uh, oh, he nice. had some, he had some news about that project that I don't know how public it is, but, uh, it's going to be awesome is all I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good place where you can do that sort of thing where you can just sit and chat with, uh, you know, a writer for a while and get a little bit of kind of inside scoop as to what plans are for the future and stuff. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's my hometown convention. So I, not that I feel obligated to go, but it, I'm glad that it is what it is in my hometown. Um, you know, like I, I would hate for it to be this, you know, shitty basement convention, with, hmm. you know, that, that's kind of depressing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm pretty stoked on how it's stepped up and it's this nice, uh, kind of, uh, dress rehearsal for San Diego, I think for a lot of companies these days, cause it's six weeks from San Diego. It's big enough to, that everyone's, you know, trying to dial in their, their, uh, tabling setup or what have you. And, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it was cool. And then I got to meet a, a ton of fans. Just, uh, man, every time I do a convention like this, I'm just blown away by, uh, people who like what I do, you know? And, uh, and thus far I've, uh, I, I really like all my fans, which was a concern of mine when I first started doing this. And I, you know, the first time I was going to go table somewhere, I was like, Oh God, I gotta, I gotta meet my fans now. I gotta see who's actually responding to this. And, and, uh, having worked at a company with a fan base that uh, let's say I just didn't have the, most fondness for most of the time. Um, it was, uh, it was nice to find out that I like my fan base, that, that, uh, that the fans that are, that are responding to the thing that I do. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I'm uh, doing a sketch for somebody or signing something. And I look down and they're like, they're wearing the same shoes that I have, or they have the same band t-shirt on that I have on, you know, just, uh, they seem to be very like-minded and, uh, and very cool. So, um, yeah, I'm just, you know, I, I posted this the other day on my Facebook thing, but I don't say it often enough, man. I just really just love my fans, you know, like, you know, just wanted to thank them for coming out and being cool. In a roundabout uh, way, you're saying you love us and we love you too. Oh yeah, no, I love you guys. You guys keep me company while I'm drawing. You don't know how many, like, I, I literally was thinking this morning that I don't know what I'm going to do Thursday when I don't have you guys to listen to now that we did the show together. It's like, oh, I gotta uh, find like another three hours to Hubris, kill. dude, you gotta listen back to yourself. No, no, dude, I can't. I just won't do it. There's so many things that I, I can't uh, do it either. Yeah. By the way, it needs to be said. You have a darn good looking family. Oh, thank you, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your, your yeah. wife, your wife's gorgeous. Your, your, your daughter is, is unbelievably pretty. Your oh, son's man, cool yeah. looking. He's like a little, he's got a little hipster look to him. He's so oh. slick. He's probably getting the ladies already. It's you know look. what is funny is he, he doesn't realize he, he, women love him and I don't know what it is. And it, he's, he's, he has an easy life in a way that really annoys me because. <laughs> 
because people just love him and they love, uh, and women especially, like older women, young women, they just dig him and he doesn't realize it. So he's just kind of bebopping through life. Like, and the thing, like, I think the thing that sums him up the most is that when he goes to bed, he takes his shirt off, he lays down, he's unconscious in five minutes. He doesn't worry about a thing. And right. then he wakes up, he wakes up at five and he's wide awake and he's happy and he's just, he is so, lackadaisical just bebopping through life enjoying himself that uh, that a lot of times like my daughter who's uh she's pretty cerebral you know she's uh she's a she's a straight a student in like all honor classes and she plays six instruments and she sings really well and she was student body president this year and uh, she makes me feel lazy like i really you know um and then she's she's also pretty in that way that makes me suck my gut in around her you know like she's, <laughs> she's um you know it's just and, and she's She's me, but she's, she can't sleep sometimes at night because she's got too much going on in her head. And so I'll go and we'll just chat and talk and kind of, you know, like wind down the day and we can just hear Wilder snoring in the other room and be, her and I are both like, God, really? Like just, just once I want him to have a hard time sleeping, you know, just concerned about anything would be nice, but he's just, it's just <laughs> not in him, you know? And uh, yeah, but thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. Yeah. My, uh, my kids came out very, very well. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to do with that. Like I really. I, uh, I do a little bit of stand up and I talk about it in my stand up where I, I, I say that, uh, that I, my daughter is this, this beautiful mythical creature. She's just, you know, everything I would have wanted, but never really expected to get all of. And, uh, so she's like this unicorn in my house and I don't know what the fuck a unicorn eats. Like I'm just trying, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep her alive. I'm just trying to not, not have her like, you know, just all that stands between her, you know, me or her and some fucked up life is, is, uh, is my attention span, you know? So, I try to, when they're around, it's like, you know, cause, cause one off, one offhanded comment from me and she's got an eating disorder. You know what I mean? So I just, I gotta, I gotta watch what I say around them and, and try to, try to, you know, it's important to me that they have a capacity for happiness. Like I realize that I can't just give them happiness, but I can instill in them the capacity for happiness. And so it's more important for me to teach them how to think and not what to think. And so, um, that's, that's a lot of attention, man, every day. You know, and, it, and it's easy to just want to kind of take it easy one day, but, uh, but that's going to be the day that they learn some life lesson that I unintended life lesson that makes them give up or, or, you know, not have that capacity for happiness anymore. So, yeah. Um, but uh, you seem like you're doing a hell of a job too, man. Your family is, is pretty damn good looking, all of them too. And they all seem pretty happy and, and fulfilled, man. Yeah, we'll see. It's all genetics. You know, my wife's, uh, it's, it's all they just, they won the genetic lottery by getting to look like my wife instead of me. So, you know. Yeah, my kids ended up being that weird mix between the two of us. My, uh, my former wife, the one I had the kids with, their, their mom, I guess, my baby mama, uh, they, uh, <laughs> she's, uh, she's Australian. She's this redhead Australian girl. And so, um, and so yeah, it was, uh, it was a weird me being Mexican and her being Australian. I'm like, I don't, I don't know that that mix exists in nature. Let's, you know, we don't know how that's going to come out. So, uh, but luckily they, they seem to get the, be- the best of both worlds. You know, Quinn's got that, um, that's, uh, kind of vaguely ethnic look about her. You know, she's, uh, she doesn't look completely white, but you don't know what she is. And, and, uh, so she's, but she's got like the dark eyes and the, and the kind of reddish hair and, uh, She's got her mom's smile, but my nose and stuff. So yeah, it was a, it seemed to be the right mix. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's always a crapshoot. That's why I stopped after those two. It's like, I'm, <laughs> I don't want to take a chance that, that the third one's going to be that See, third you, one. You, yeah. you take us talking about how pretty your daughter is a lot better than when we tell Vince how pretty his daughters are. Oh, yeah. Cause he yeah. wants to kill us, even just joking. About it. He wants to I kill me right silly. now, bring it up. He's, he's just eating right now. <laughs> Well, you know, my approach is always, like I said before, you know, like I, I, I want to give them, um, 
life skills, like decision making skills and, and confidence and uh, the ability to be in the world. Like I can't, I can't protect them from the world. Like I can't, they're going to have to live in it at some point. And the world is, is a, is an ugly place. It's a fucked up place. You know, it's a place that, that you need some strength to navigate. And so, um, I've spent many, many years just trying to, trying to give them good coping skills and, and good uh, decision making skills and, uh, and empowering them to make decisions and cope on their own instead of handling it for them. And so now that my daughter is of dating age, uh, she had a boyfriend until fairly recently. And, uh, I just, you know, um, a, when she got the boyfriend, she told me, she's like, oh, I'm dating this guy. I'm like, cool. I'm sure he's a good guy because she would not, there's no way my daughter's going to, going to date a shitty dude, you know, like he, and again, he was like an all honors uh, class student. He went to, he goes to the, he went to the high school for math in eighth grade. Like yeah, that's how advanced in math he was. He played some sports. Like he's, he's a pretty well-rounded, well-rounded, uh, cool little kid that, that's, uh, you know, he, he was around for a few months and then things ended and she learned what it's like to, have a relationship end. And I didn't give her the like, Oh no, you know, it's going to get, I'm like, I let her grieve. I'm like, this, this is part of life. This is things end and you have to learn how to deal with, uh, how to end relationships. And so I know that when she gets to college and she's finally on her own and I'm not there for, for support, you know, physically all the time, you know, when she's doing that, I know she's going to be fine because she's learned how to handle life. And, uh, you know, if I try to build some wall around her, the more she's just going to want to climb over that wall and run away. So, you know, it's, it's not easy, man. Like, I don't, you know, when, when, uh, when you see them running toward, you know, toward an edge and you know, they're going to fall, it's, it's hard to let them t- learn that lesson, but you know, sometimes it's got to happen. For sure. Yeah. yeah. The other two coasts are quiet and shit all of a sudden. <laughs> Giving the guests some sp- space to breathe. Yeah, how old is your, your daughter now, Vince? She's a, she's a teenager. Six, she's 16. Oh man. <laughs> How's that going for you? She's 16. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not digging it, but um, one of the reasons why I was so quiet as you guys were talking, I was looking at your ultimate ROM. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. brother, that is awesome. Sick, thank you. Yeah, I, um, I I really wanted to give him that kind of Evangelion like uh, anime feel, like update ROM. Uh, yeah, I see a little bit of Pat labor in there too. Yeah, yeah. I um, yeah. I just wanted the head to be the same. Like, it, it, honestly, it was kind of my. It was me making fun of all the ultimate stuff, I guess, cause, <laughs> uh, cause the ultimate Iron Man came out. I'm like, oh, what are they going to do? Ultimate ROM? I'm like, what could that be? And then I thought about it. I'm like, oh, that could be this. And then I did this, you know, as if ROM had been built by this, uh, Japanese conglomerate in the, you know, way distant future as a space knight. And, and, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, my love of anime came out in that. Let's make this happen. Yeah, it's, know, it's 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 an impossible task. Of all the things it. that I've pitched, yeah. that uh, did I did you guys see that Buana Beast thing that I pitched? I did, I did. Yeah. And I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask if if that was. I know it wasn't something that. I know it was a pitch, but yeah, we talked about the 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 back matter for upcoming issues. If if that was. Oh no, no. To that. Okay. It, it has, it's nothing to do with anything I've shown anybody. I had to put pl- what I, the, the project I'm putting in there, it had to be played close to the vest. And I, I think I need a little bit more permission before I can show it, but, um, but I'm gonna, I'm, I, I guess I could, I, I'm gonna show it, but no, that, that Buona Beast was, um, just I had a contact at DC, a guy who could, you know, get me in front of editors and stuff. And, and, uh, I had, uh, pitched, um, did you guys see that Chris Sims things that I, that I pitched for, uh, that Batman 3000 thing that I pitched? Um, I post, yes, uh, Sim, uh, Chris Sims from Comics Alliance was writing it and I was drawing it and it was this, um, Batman in the time of the, uh, of the Legion 
so it's like three thousand in the year three thousand, and and it's this. Uh, it was this little side pocket story that happened. It wasn't going to affect anybody, and um and it was this kid who uh whose dad was an archaeologist who was the last person to believe in Batman because at this point in history, like uh Talia Agul has wiped out any record of Batman uh, because of how much she hates him, Bitch. and so uh and so <laughs> Batman's almost a myth because because when we pitched it, they hadn't reset too much of, the, of that part of the DC universe, and so. In DC, it's still there was no Batman analog really in in the uh, Legion. So, um, so he was he always thought uh, Chris Sims being a huge Batman fan, um, and this is all on his blog too. You can check out the pitch and everything. He uh, he thought that uh, you know there must be a reason for that, and so he came up with this. uh, And there had been that guy Brain something or other who had came from uh, in one episode in like the fifties or one issue in the fifties. This guy Batman from the future came back, and so he was basically filling in that backstory. And so Brain's dad is this. is this archaeologist who still believes in Batman, and so he's going, he's trying to go to, to this place where he knows this like Batman outpost to be out in this unincorporated area of space. And uh, as soon as he gets there, the uh, the League of Assassins shows up with Talia, and she's you know she's super pissed, uh, going to kill everybody. And so uh, Brain ends up becoming Batman uh, to protect himself more than anything. And so uh, what I brought to the story was I thought that it would be cool if the person who was leading him there was this little old man. And it's like, no, I'll show you where this, this Batman outpost is. And, and, and that old man sacrifices himself to make them safe so they can get to that final step to the, the bat cave there. And that man turns out to be an old, uh, batmite. He's an old man batmite. And, uh, and so it also shows how the Legion of Assassins has, uh, has stepped their game up because now they can kill an immortal, you know? And then the other thing that I had that I wanted to put in there was, um, I wanted the sidekick to be, uh, kind of their Brock Samson or their, um, they're, uh, what's the guy from Johnny Quest? Oh god, I forget his name. The, uh, Race Bannon. You Race know, like, Bannon, yeah. yeah, their Race Bannon was gonna be this former Kooned who, uh, who was with them and he becomes the Robin. So the Robin is this huge hulking Kooned, you know, with pink skin. And then the Batman is this kind of more agile, uh, very, uh, like 70s anime looking character. And, uh, so yeah, we had this, we had that whole, god, I'm totally on a, on a tie right now. Uh, so, uh, we had that whole pitch together and, uh, and, and we got it over to DC and they were like, yeah, no, like we can't, we got, uh, you know, Justice League 3000 coming out. We've got, uh, some other bat thing that they couldn't do. Uh, Batman Beyond is what they felt it stepped on. And so they're like, yeah, we just can't do this. I'm like, ah, oh, well, shitty. Um, so then my next step was like, well, I've got this kind of conduit into at least have ideas looked at. Um, I want to do something that no one's doing anything with. And that's when I was like, I, I want to take some, and like, I literally was joking when I said, I want to take something like Buona Beast and make him cool. And then, uh, that's when I came up with that idea for Buona Beast, where we could have him be a Buona Beast and not the Buona Beast, you know, like one of many, uh, and so he, you know, this would happen in, in like Mexico and he would be a, a luchador by day, but, um, also a crime fighter by night, the superhero by night who always has the mask on. And, and my idea was that he's, he's as if the ultimate warrior believed his own backstory. Like, <laughs> like he, you know, he's saying that he's a superhero can, who can meld animals together. And everyone, and, and you kind of never know if it's real or not. You're like, well, this, these weird things happen around him. He seems to have some kind of power, but maybe it's just coincidence. And then there is going to be this, uh, rare isotope of nth metal that gets destroyed in the, um, in the uh, jungle or gets discovered in the jungles of Mexico. And so LexCorp sends like a black water team to go retrieve it. And so he goes to intervene because it's going to threaten the habitat of the Jaguar, which is like a spirit animal. And so he goes out there and, and so these weird amalgamation of animals show up and you don't know if that's 
his power, if it's this weird radioactive isotope of nth metal that's just mutating animals. And so it was never going to be decided. In my head, it was never going to be completely uh, um, revealed whether or not he really has power, you know, or if he's just a, a lunatic who all of these things kind of fall into place for. So, um, yeah, that was my wannabes pitch. And that, that, uh, that again, just, I don't know. I, I get the sense that, uh, I mean, I, I, I see why that wouldn't be like, you know, completely marketable, but it doesn't mean we couldn't do it digitally. But I, I don't, I get the sense that both, and I, I have a, a, an ear over at Marvel too. I get the sense they don't, they're not really interested in, in kind of new ideas, you know, like they're interested in new talent that can execute their ideas that they have already. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not to talk shit. I mean, like I would love to do a Marvel book. I would love to do a DC book. So anyone from those companies listening, you know, hire me. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I feel that, um, that comics have gone from being an artist medium moved into being a writer's medium. And now they're almost becoming an editorial and licensing medium. And, uh, especially with the big two, they're, they're, they're bigger ships, ships that are hard to turn and they take a lot less chances. Um, but I think because of that, you know, I mean, Superman keeps the lights on in the comic shop that carries my comics. So I can't, I can't shit on that. You know, like I'm, I'm the, uh, the little pilot fish to their great white. Like I, you know, I, I need them out there, but, um, but, uh, you know, I, I would also still like to help, you know, do something for them at some point, too. So um, and I've got plenty of ideas. You know, I, I, I just don't I, I got to get myself more famous so that they'll want to do stuff for you know with me. I agree with that assessment. Uh, I would have to say I think it's more D.C. than Marvel, though. I mean, if Marvel is uber editorially driven, they're really masking it well these days. Yeah, because they seem, the, to, there's a, they seem to they have a better handle on on uh, innovation, I would say. Yeah, I was, yeah, there's a ton of creativity at Marvel, where DC it just seems like they're treading water. I, and I hate to say that, but uh, there's almost nothing. I, I it bothers me to say this. There's almost nothing I enjoy reading at DC these days. I read one comic you see now. I, I have huge hopes for Infinity Man. And the Forever People, oh, yeah, which came yeah. out today. But I think again, like, like I loved OMAC, and how many issues did it last? Seven, six, eight, eight, eight issues. Eight. There you go. And, yeah. and this, mm-hmm. this, the artwork I've seen seems very reminiscent of OMAC. It is, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I, I think, I think they try to do cool stuff. I mean, they did Wednesday Comics back in the day, and that was oh, yeah. amazing. They, they have cool stuff that seems to get pushed through there, but. I mean, you, you know, you got to figure they can they can make a shitty movie and make a billion dollars, or they can you know waste a lot of time and effort trying to you know do innovative comics that may or may not land. You know, they put a bat symbol on the marquee of a theater and they're guaranteed a billion dollars. You know, like how much kind of thought and and caretaking are they really going to worry about what they can do with some of their legacy characters? And it's it's a shame because if they just loosened it up, like as if it didn't really matter to their bottom line, they could have, they could be a great company. That's the feeling you get from Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, at least I, I get from Marvel. Yeah. I mean, they, they at least will have fun with their comics. Marvel yeah. doesn't take themselves so seriously that they can't say, Oh yeah, we can do a dupe one shot. That's not going to hurt anything. You know? And well, exactly. Great. I mean, look at the, uh, I mean, look at the, you know, the, um, the, the rocket raccoon, series that Scotty's doing. I mean, the, the first issue pre-orders are over 300,000, right? For a, a, a comic that's about a raccoon, uh, you know, uh, at a galactic wrestling match, you know, like that's all, that's pretty awesome. Like that's, that's cool. You I know, think they, 
the most the companies seem to have like lost yeah that that perspective on like if we just tell compelling stories that are enjoyable people will buy them i think i think a lot of what dc is doing is um is worrying about how uh how clever they can be you know look at look at this complicated you know multi-cogged machine that we can put together and that we can fold in some past continuity and some new continuity and you know look look uh, look how clever we can be and and uh you know it's it's not only is it comic for comic fans already, it's it's comic for hardcore comic fans already, you know, and, and um, that's that's preaching to the choir. Whereas Marvel's like, yeah, if we want new fans, we got to do something new. Right. I also think the DC is trying to anticipate what comic readers want, and when you try and when you do that, instead of you know making comics like nobody's reading. You you automatically write yourself into a certain mindset where you're doomed. Either way, you're doomed. You, you can't create spontaneous, um, you know, creative stuff if you're worrying about how it's going to be received. Just do it. Yeah, and do more. I mean, that's that's what I always say about like um, something like Elvis. You know, like he came along and gave the people what they didn't know they always wanted. You know what I mean? Right. Like if if someone in the music industry before him had said, you know, what's the next big thing? They would have looked to what had worked in the past and tried to emulate that instead of, no, uh, what about this, you know, hillbilly guy who's singing black music? Um, you know, because on paper at that time in America, that sounds like a terrible idea, but you know, it was Elvis Presley, you know? So, um, I, I think that, uh, the taste makers, the people in control are, are more about maintaining some kind of status quo based on, um, Based on what the past performance is, you know, I mean, we need someone to write the money ball for comics where it's, uh, let's really analyze what sells in the industry as opposed to worrying about batting averages. You know, let's, let's start looking at on base percentages and, and, uh, no one's come up with that metric yet or no one's in charge who has that metric. I think there's plenty of people who can realize that it's about getting men on base and not about what your batting average is, you know. I hope they never do come up with that metric. Because then it's as soon as you establish a template of what works, you'll never try anything outside of those boundaries. Yeah. If if it, it you know if it's proven that that capes and cowls work, then well you're shit out of luck as far as Rocket Raccoon goes. Yeah. No, I, I agree with yeah. you, but I th- I think yeah. that uh, I think that that's a, that's the biggest problem right there uh, is that I think um, people get caught up in the style of what works and not the substance of what works. Oh, right. And so, yeah, yeah people see, oh, capes and cowls are selling. We're going to do more capes and cowls as opposed to no uh, characters with a good moral center who have clear motivations and clear goals that have, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's emotional cores to what these characters are really about. And in my life in advertising, what I've learned, um, you know, as a creative director at an ad agency for a long time and whenever I'd be in a room full of creatives and, and, and or clients uh, running the meeting, my my question is always, and designers will do this all the time, they start trying to design their way out of, out of an advertising problem. And I just have to stop everyone and say, what are we really selling here? You know, because Nike doesn't sell sporting equipment. Nike sells transcendence of existence through sport. They're selling you the opportunity to be the better you. And you're going to do it with their product. And so... You know, what, what is Superman really selling you? Is he selling you capes and cowls and flying and laser vision? No, he's selling you an ideal of what we all could become. And when we represent him that way, when we're set, when we present him as an ideal, as a paradigm of the potential of humanity, 
he's a much more compelling character than if we just worry about how his, his if his underwear's on the outside or how long his cape is. So I right. I think that you know someone looks at Spawn and goes, oh, we're, people are into long capes, you know, we're gonna everyone's <laughs> gonna have long capes and chains. And you go, no, no, no. The, the compelling thing about Spawn is it's a man who's made a Faustian bargain who still wants to maintain his who he was. You know, I mean, these are that's what is compelling about him, not the cape and the chains, because you can tell that story in a million different ways. And so, well, the, the chains were cool. Well, they are cool. Yeah, you know I'm saying you, know, you got to put <laughs> yeah. a, you know, a coat of polish on it. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I think that someone over an editorial at, at uh, DC or someone in charge needs to go. What What are we really selling when we're when we're talking about Batman? Are we talking about vigilanteism or are we talking about the idea that there is a justice beyond legality? You know, I mean, so. How do you sell that? You know, when we're talking about Wonder Woman, are we talking about gender empowerment? You know, are we talking about, uh, you know, an idyllic form of woman or, or are we talking about, again, that kind of Im- immigrant makes good, you know, stranger in a strange land, um, but still trying to maintain some goal. And so I think that, that, that a lot of these characters have, have gotten lost in the trappings. I mean, someone like Daredevil is a perfect example. Where someone saw, oh, what people like about Daredevil is how dark and gritty he got. So I'm going to go darker and grittier and darker and grittier. And then eventually someone like Wade comes along and goes, no, he's not about the dark and gritty. You know, he's about the place that he loves and protecting the people that are around him, you know, and, and, uh, and he just discounts it all and he gets you back to that emotional core of a character and he makes a compelling story. And it's, you know, on paper, it looks like it shouldn't work because of what had been working, but then you see it executed and you're like, oh no, that is what Daredevil is about. He is about being a swashbuckler in New York. And when you present him that way, he's fantastic. So yeah. sorry, well, sorry for the rant. No, that's good. The, uh, the approach has always been a superficial one. And that's the, the entire comic industry. When something is proven, when something clicks and finds an audience, you get your copycats. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, oh man, this, this character broke batman's back that's violent or or look at wolverine he's got blades on his hands and he kills people that's violent so comics became more violent more dark and and we had that whole good girl craze where you know tna sells which is pretty much proven in any industry but there was a time when all the new books were like women with gigantic breasts so it's like a superficial approach where you're not looking at like you said what actually makes these characters work the ones that did work and and what's at the nut of 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 the the center of this thing they don't look at that they just look at the surface level yeah absolutely and and ultimately a lot of these editors jobs is just to move the needle too and so they're forced to do these kind of myopic uh you know band-aid on a bullet wound kind of approaches where they're you know, they got to move that, you know, a lot of these companies are publicly traded. They have to show some kind of return on investment to their stockholders. Right. They have to move the needle. And sometimes that's like, well, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have to have Superman break a guy's neck, you know, because that's going to be shocking. We have to have him renounce his citizenship because that'll sell some issues. Um, and, you know, and they, they're just, you know, they're constantly punting. They're, they're not really, you know, they're just, just trying to get them get that that short term goal and worry about the long term later and they don't ever have time to to worry about the long term and think about you know the emotional core and and you know yeah it's it's a it's a law of diminishing return here you know the more that you get gimmicky with your characters the less often that's going to work you know and so at some point something like you know Wade's got to step into Daredevil and go yeah we we can't keep getting darker you know he's been a demon we can't go any darker let's uh, 
let's get back to what he used to be and, and, you know, and, and see if that doesn't resonate with people. And, and it did, you know, and every time they do that, every time a character gets back to his emotional core, you know, that Batman book that Capullo and Schneider are doing, you know, is, is a true emotional core of who Batman is as, as a detective, as a, as a hero, you know, and as a motivated hero at that. Um, and that's why that book is so good. And that, uh, everything else just got caught up in how high the collar is going to be and, whether or not their underwear is on the outside, you know? That's <laughs> true. Jason, buddy, what did you read? Do you have anything you wanted to talk about? I do. I do. Oh, boy. What you got? I got something that's going to baffle people because it's way out of any kind of genre that folks would think I would be wanting to recommend. Oh, my ears just perked up. Uh, this was a book that I came across in the uh, Eisner Noms. And after checking out the website of the creators and some of the praise and by who it was published by, I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a try and just dive in and see what happens. And I ended up loving it. It is by First Second, who I seemingly talk about a lot these days. Uh, it's a OGN called This One Summer um, by sisters uh, Jillian and Mariko Tamaki. Oh, uh, this book is, and this is where it gets to the point where you're like, Woods reading one. This is a book basically about um, a, a little girl, a uh, young teenage girl named Rose, who goes to a place called uh, Awego Beach every summer with her parents. It's their, you know, their summer getaway, and she spends the summers carefree, enjoying the beach and hanging out with her friend Wendy and getting into adventures. But this summer is different. She's getting older. Uh, uh, Wendy's getting old. Not Wendy, Wendy. Wendy's getting older, and her parents are fighting this summer about something, although she's not quite sure what. Uh, and the, the layers of that puzzle are peeled back as the as the book goes on. And in a lot of ways, it's a coming of age for her, a loss of innocence for her, uh, the people that she's surrounded with. Uh, and I just found the book so engaging, uh, even though it's a, um, uh, a, a lead of the book that, that I seemingly have no, no anchor of reference to having never been a, uh, pubescent teenage girl <laughs> living at shore. But, uh, but no, it, it just was, it just was done so well. The, uh, the, the art is just fantastic. It's, it's, it's this clean line style with rich backgrounds. Um, it's it's. I'm I'm trying to think who who an artist that I could. I'm uh, uh, looking at it now. It kind of looks almost Paulo Rivera, Paulo Rivera ish. Yeah, like, there's yeah, an expressive quality. Yeah, mm-hmm. but a little yeah. a little simpler than that though. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, it's not quite manga esque, but there is definitely some manga-esque line work when it comes to the to the drawing of the of the characters that, themselves especially some of the uh, some of the secondary characters are drawn a little i think intentionally exaggerated or cartoony you know but what I, it's I just it looks yeah. like if paulo rivera drew for better or worse oh that's very good look at you glad there we you have go. you on sorry to interrupt man go ahead no 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 so, so it's it's and it's it's just a story of of rose's summer really um there's, there's no grand conclusion there's no Aha moment. There's no uh, great moral takeaway. It's 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 just 
as though we're, de- we're deposited into these people's lives for three months. And I, I guess in that vein, it's, it's, the, it's a classic slice of life book, uh, which again, people that know me or, or have listened to our show over the years know that I'm generally not a fan of slice of life comics. But in this case, this one was impeccably well done and engaging and to the point. And I just thought it was great. I just thought it was a very human reflection of the uh, insecurities and tensions that pervade uh, typical uh, American childhood. Um, so I highly recommend it. I can see why it's been getting so much critical praise. And this is, uh, I think, characterized as a young adult book. So uh, this would be one of those books where when when you hear people talking about the lack of diversity in comics or or someone says, I wish I had a comic I could recommend for my teen or especially a teen, teenage girl, here's a book for you. Uh, this one summer by the Tamaki sisters because uh, it's terrific. It's it's uh, – I'm just trying to see how many pages it is. It is – 307, 319 pages. Uh, and the last line of the book is boobs would be cool. So, uh, I, I definitely would say go ahead and get this. And if you want to check it out, uh, first, you can go to firstsecondbooks.com, but you can also go to the, the Tamaki sisters have their own, uh, websites. Um, they're Canadian. Uh, I won't hold that against them. If Chris was here, he'd make some obligatory Canada joke. Um, but it's, uh, Mariko, M-A-R-I-K-O. Tamaki, T-A-M-A-K-I, all one word, uh, dot blogspot dot com. Uh, and then, uh, she, she's the writer. And then Jillian, her sister, is the cartoonist, and she is Jillian with two L's, Tamaki, all one word dot com. So you can go and check some of the uh, illustrations and, and scripting and stuff on their sites if you want a taste of it before. But it's, it's got a hefty group of endorsements on the back just to give you a sense. I mean, Craig Thompson, Hope Larson, Stephanie Perkins, and, and the like. So, uh, Two major thumbs up for me on on a book well out of my comfort zone. For real, for real, yeah. dude. I know. For reals. Yeah, I think I'm gonna get this for my daughter. I, I keep trying to find that comic that she'll actually read. So I'll give her this. Yeah, I, I definitely, man. I, 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 it's, 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 it's just wonderfully well done, and um, I, I, I think that's one of the great things about uh, art and, and fiction of any type, whether it be TV, movies, novels, uh, comics. When something's well done, it's it's just well done, you know, and and I think could be appreciated yep. by a, a far more, a far broader uh, audience than is often credited for it. So, this is a yeah. good example of that. That Michael Allred Hayton kid who joined this show is almost completely gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm about to turn forty this year, so you know it's about. There you go. You're all grown up. That's right. David. Vincent. Anything. Anything, buddy? I read Original Sin number three. Okay. Uh, I don't spoil it, but oh. what'd, you, what'd you think? You didn't read it, Vince? Not yet, no. What? Well, he's got, he's got Future's End to decide on. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, I have, I have much time to waste with Future's End. Um, 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 I, at this point, um, three issues in, I am, reading it for Jason Aaron's take on the characters. I Diodato is Diodato, but it it mm-hmm. it seems the what I enjoyed in like the first issue, Car aside, um they're in my eyes they're just he he or the studio is is just taking a little bit 
the liberties are a little um the cover's great cover is great uh Sorry. there are okay. just there are some some panels some some images that uh i am not um Ooh. go ahead keen on I, but no oh, you got to the last page no, but I look, I'm looking at the the uh, splash with Doctor Midas when the orb is sitting there. That's and, awesome. And the, yeah, really it's like, nice. It, Diodato must know that he's like, I just never really likes the orb, so I got to make all his appearance. And and orb looks fantastic throughout the entire book. Um, okay, I'm, I'm on what I'm assuming is page um, six and five and six, six and six, I don't know, but it's it's the orb blasting it's, all the heroes. Yes, so- yeah. Wow! The Why? What? The eyeball, does it... the eyeball has exploded, and it has um, it has shown everybody or touched everyone in the vicinity. Um, it, their eyes are open. They're, they they now know things that they did not know before that. Right. Um, and that's where all the, the the secrets are coming out, and I guess all the teaser images that that were leading up to the uh, to the event that they're all going to start to make sense now. But um, the story, I think, is as funky as hell. I'm I'm really digging it. It's you know this isn't it doesn't it doesn't feel like an Avengers event. You had Infinity, and it doesn't it it reminds me somewhat of like Contest of Champions, where they have you just have you know. These, these, these various teams have been set up, whether it's Doctor Strange and Punisher, or, um, Ant-Man and, um, uh, White Queen and, uh, and Black Panther and, and, uh, or, or Moon Knight and Winter Soldier and whichever female is in space with them. But they're all, these are all, they have a purpose and, and which reminds me of the whole contest of champions where they all had to find a piece of the, uh, piece of that orb. But the, um, the last page is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And, and, uh, I was told by, um, Mr. Andrew Shaw that before I read anything else yesterday, um, that I had to catch up. Um, that I had to read the third issue of Original Sin before I go any further, and and he uh, so we've been battling some um, battling some theories back and forth. You, of all the characters in the Marvel universe, <laughs> I know that this one has been yep replicated many times. L M D L M D, and and there's a scene where um where he's 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 trying to figure out why. Everybody around him, um, their their deepest darkest secret has uh, was came back to haunt them. But uh, this particular character had no memories that that you know good or bad, and and it's like it's, so there were these little little clues leading up before that that last scene, and uh, it's it's a striking image. But, you know, I just, I want to, I, I want to read the fourth issue now. I just, I want to see where, where we're going with it. And, and it took a couple issues to, I guess, get where we were supposed to get, um, uh, again, as far as the teaser images go and where it was supposed to be, I guess, what the series is about. Now we're the beginning of the third issue to finally, um, 
brings that to light and, and, uh, and I guess we'll move forward now. I mean, there's, there's, there's few issues left in this series and I know that there, there are a couple tie-ins and I'm not sure. I know that the, the Avengers issues, um, at least with the trade dress on the covers, I'm not sure where the original Sin tie-in comes into play because the Avengers are pretty much being thrown into the future. Um, and it's, that's a cool looking story too because that's, that, that's drawn, um, that's penciled by Lanil Yu and, um, Hickman is just having the Avengers really, it's, it's weird. It, it, they're just, Hickman is just having a, a ton of fun with the Avengers right now and he's, he's throwing them into the future and, and, uh, Hawkeye is, is trying to, um, leave clues for where they're going next and what's going to happen next. And, and I can't wait to see how, how Hickman's going to wrap this up, but I don't know like what's going on with the other, um, I have a Deadpool issue original sin tie-in to read. So I'm, I'm curious to see where everything connects as far as the tie-ins, the, the tie-ins that I'm going to be reading anyway. But, but I mean, as far as original sin, I, Aaron has me hooked. I, I, I need to see where he's taking this. Tell you something about Diodato. While the content of that last page is cool, that cod piece is obscenely <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. He's gotta be. I, I, I can't figure it out if that's supposed to imply that Winter Soldier's hung like a mule or has some sort of mechanical like prosthetic, prosthetic that allows him to urinate now because of all those years in hibernation. That's, that's ridiculous. I, I, I think I gotta pull off, off this road you guys are traveling down because I think this art's fine. I, I don't see anything I would- Did you look at the page where Wolverine and the Hulk are yelling at the orb? Yeah. That is the worst looking Hulk ever. (laughs) That Hulk. He looks like, he looks like Steven Sanders beast. That kind of resembles Diodato's Hulk that he, uh, rendered way back when. Look at the humpback it's got. I, uh, it's, that's a, uh, creative license? I just... No, that's, I don't see anything, uh, oh, anything you are such a homer when it comes to the Adato. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it. You've got blinders on with the Adato. It's ridiculous. No, and it's a recent thing too. I know. It's, it I, is. I, I think that image is perfectly acceptable. Can we wow. Singing the praises of LaRocca. Hmm. Yeah, too tough. I hope you don't man. let your professor hear you say that. This stuff doesn't draw itself, Very, damn it. My god. <sighs> I my oh, favorite my favorite scene was when they discover what it was that they were the other thing that gets killed. Ah, you're standing on it. Mhm. Yeah, yes. That's, yeah. Nuts. That's dope. It's crazy. Yeah. We're being a little bit too vague, Wait, so. That's all right. Cuz you didn't bother to read it, you bastard. I I just almost did. You're always the guy that reads have it right here. before we even get a chance to get ours. It's it's true, but when you take a big bite out of like a 300 and some page collection, there's not a whole lot of time to read anything else. There is for you. Original Sins came out today, number one. Yeah, now what's that about? I'm not reading that. Um, Why? You should be. No, it's, from, it's from Marvel. It's from Marvel. So there you go. Jeez. You're letting them down, man. Now, I, I don't, I don't read any of those. That for I, I've always find those secondary. 
we have an event to sell you, so we're going to make a, a a supporting event to get you to buy two copies. I, I I find them to be frustrating more than entertaining usually. So huh. if it's good and you you think it's good, let us know. Nathan Edmondson wrote it. Mike Perkins is the artist. That's cool. Andy Andy Troy is the color artist. And um, going through it now. Oh boy, this is riveting podcasting. I, I, I know. Um, wow, they said the D word. That doesn't look like that person to me. Deathlock. Huh. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who this is. Maybe they're trying to um, make him look like the character on Agents of Shield. Uh, appears it appears that to be that way. Yes. Interesting. Hmm. I yes, don't know how to feel a... about that. Ooh. Did y'all read Southern Bastards too? Yes. No, my uh, mine are still in my pull box. I with the con, I haven't been able to to get one or two. Mm. Vince is all quiet again. There's there's a backup here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. No, no, there's there's a backup here drawn by uh, Ramon Villa Lobos. You know what's uh, uh, a Young Avengers backup? It looks awesome. You know how sixty seconds ago you were making a joke about how it's really bad radio to. Look through yes, I'm sorry. First time a narrate as you're looking through it. Yes. That again. I, I, I know it's not fun. There's a lockjaw story too. Did, did um, you not read uh, Southern Bastard number two? I did. I thought it was great. Me too. He's got a role on this. He is. This, the, the final page was a cliffhanger yet again and awesome. Loved it. And what about Trees number one? Oh, that was my in your travels last week. I yes. know, I'm saying, but I hadn't read it last week and yes. we didn't discuss it. Right, we did, yeah, and that was that was deliberate. That, that's why I, I. Yes, but I don't know. If Vince read it. I did. Wow. And would you? I mean, I David obviously enjoyed it because he made it's, it in his travels. But it's interesting. It's a different approach um, for Mister Ellis. And I think for Mister Howard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. It it just took me a bit by surprise because it's not in tandem with what I expected at, at all. Isn't that exciting? I mean, how many yes. how many writers that we. That have enough work behind them that we that they're can surprise you. I think that's that's one thing that Warren Ellis deserves credit for. Yeah, it, this is true. Uh, it it almost didn't seem to be delivered with the same voice as a lot of his stuff. That there was almost no, um, I don't want to say bite, but it, it that, that nudge nudge wink wink stuff that Ellis sometimes does, like. He he revels in his own cleverness sometimes. Okay. Mm-hmm. At, at least I get the opinion. Uh, I get the perception of that. But there didn't seem to be. He was playing it almost straight. I loved it. I I, I thought it was fantastic. I, I, I everything about it I loved. I love the choice of the way that they're illustrating the trees. Yes. I love the premise of these things showing up and then. Basically, just being there for years with no inclination of to why they're there, what they want, if they want anything, and how. And there's these subtle things, like, and, and at the expense of, of, of regurgitating what what David said at the end of last episode. I mean, the premise is relatively straightforward. You're 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 entered into a world where these pile these these almost look like telephone poles, essentially. Gigantic. But of massive city-sized spikes just show up and, and, and 
insert themselves, root themselves into the earth. Um, and they periodically apparently can release uh, a green ooze that's, I, I guess, similar to a sap that's corrosive and can destroy everything around it. And yet in spite of that, humanity has has adapted to their existence to the point where there are little, uh, almost like Brazilian uh, favela cities built on the root systems and, and at the basis of these things now. Yeah, like dangerously close yeah, and, to that, and, that shit. And, and maybe I'm projecting here because certainly I haven't seen any indication that Warren Ellis is getting at that. But to me, this was a visual representation of, of something that we do, particularly in this country when it comes to tragedy. What I mean by that is, is, is if you think about it, when, when 9-11 happened, think of the, the, the way that our lives changed for, for, in the immediacy thereafter, right? I mean, I worked at the Citigroup Center in, in Midtown Manhattan at the time. For, for two years after that, we had armed guards with, with machine guns. We had, uh, picture ID badges. We had cement, um, dividers put up everywhere so that nothing could come near the building. Um, and, and slowly but surely those protocols and that fear and those extra processes began to peel away to where now I would argue that in most situations, even at airports, we're back to a relatively normal pre 9 11, uh, status quo. We, we, we kind of condition ourselves over time to almost forget that these things are, are risks anymore after immediately at, right after them thinking, man, this is just such a huge risk. And that's kind of what I got out of this trees thing. You had this event happen that was devastating to certain parts of, of society, but because there was no follow-up, most people are just going about their business now. They've just adapted to it existing. It's, it's to me evocative of the fear of terrorism. Mm. You know, terrorism's there, but most people wake up every day saying, well, I, I'm not going to knock it on the subway because it might be attacked someday with sarin gas. If it does, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. I'm just going to go about my business. And this strikes me as kind of like that. And again, I don't know if Ellis means for that at all, but I, it was, mm. it was pouncing in the back of my head as I was reading this. See, I got a, from, from the, the whole cities built up or, or around the, the, let's call it a wound where this, this tree impacted the, the ground and it erupted. I kind of got like a, a human organism type feel from it. Like whenever you get cut, what happens? Mm-hmm. All the, all these antibodies rush to the, 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 the wound and they flood it and try and, you know, what, what your body does whenever you, you get a foreign object in you. It, it tries to purge it. And, and I saw all these cities popping up around there as like, uh, almost like a callus or a, a scar around the wound as, as a human organism That's would do. too. Yeah. yeah. I was, I, I think I'm leaning more. I mean, I, I want to know more about the trees. I, I wasn't really focused on them as much as the uh the reactions and and how people have i mean the 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 dude the mayor who's you know who um he's uh talking about how how the cops were just another gang because they had the guns they had they they, they had the ability to um do what they wanted to do they 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 weren't protecting and serving at that point when these things showed up and it it, it is i like Jason looking at it from the the personal aspect of the person on the street that that's where i i think i took the most of it from that that those are the 
moments that that hit me harder. And then and then we get you know sent away to uh, to the Arctic and and uh, to see where what's going on over there. So I mean, I the, it's there were there were enough things happening. The, the the beats were long enough where I'm I'm getting into these characters, and now we're going somewhere else. And it it didn't feel like I I lost anything or he's cramming so many characters down our throats. I don't, I'm not concerned right now is, is where all the, what, what's the connection between all these people? When are they all going to get together and, and decide? I don't, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm moving along at, at, I guess the rate that he's telling the story in and I'm not, I'm not trying to guess where it's going or, uh, or I'm not, I'm not too concerned, uh, about, I, I guess the, I'm, I'm more, Trying to get acclimated as to where we are or, or, or what people are doing and then I'll try to figure out what, uh, what the next steps are, I guess. Yeah. Phenomenal use of negative space to, to slam home the scale of these things. Yeah. Really nice. Really nice. And chicks with dicks. Unbelievable. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I was like, I was, Ding. I was, there we go. <laughs> there we go. There's your yeah, transgender. There's, See, full circle. There is trouble with the trees. Because the the maples want more sunlight. I don't really think that's transgender. I think that's uh, what they like to re- make reference to as fully functional. Trans- <laughs> Isn't that? Oh, the- see that? <laughs> no, whatever it is, it's not. Whatever it's not. hot, there's nothing hot about that. She's, she's just like, look at my dick. <laughs> she's like, I just got to shift a little yeah. bit. He's like, wow, we're not we're not <laughs> yeah, Kansas anymore, dude. He's loving it. Look at him. Yes, he's gonna look, be man, slobbing. Don't, don't get all hung up days. on your heteronormative gender binary, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that kid's gonna be slobbing that knob in a couple of days. <laughs> and paying for it. <sighs> hey everybody, you don't have to slob <laughs> now <laughs> to get discounts on your favorite funny books and collectibles. All you gotta do is go to Discount Comic Book Service. They named it correctly. DCBService.com. Get your stuff, get it cheap, get it delivered right to your door in perfect condition. They are the best. I got something. Of course you do. In your travels. You ever wanna read a book? On middle-aged men in the 50s and 60s trying to write the, uh, the, uh, conceive of the, the emotional and physical and, and spiritual aspirations of women. <laughs> it's called, it's from Craig Yo. It's a Yomance publication. Uh, it's from Craig Yo on IDW. It's called Weird Love. It's the, uh, sister publication to the Haunted Horror Book. Where Yo just scoops up all these great, uh, vintage, uh, comics, prints them on nice, toothy, heavy paper, and we get to laugh. <coughs> wow. Mm. I'm dying. I'm laughing so Drink hard. Some water. We, we get to laugh at these middle-aged men trying to figure out women. They're the first story, listen to my story and think twice before you let love take you down the dark and treacherous trail it took me. Should ill fate ever place you in my position, fight back with all your strength and heart, lest you make the same mistake I did when I fell in love with a commie. And, and, and it's about Gladys, who hooks up with Tom, but Tom is a member of the Young Americans Club. And they proudly display the Stalin is your friend sign. They're, they're a bunch of communists. And and she's like, I can change him. I know I can. He'll come around. He's a great man. These stories are awesome, David. They are so good. Um, there's one by uh, Ogden Whitney called The Love of a Lunatic, 
where a woman is berated and abused physically, uh, not physically, but uh, mentally by her mother so much she's told that she's going to be the same as her absent father. He was no good. He was wacky in the head. and You're going to be the same way. And she's eventually put in an insane asylum. But she manages to find love. Go, go figure. Uh, David will appreciate the taming of the brute, which was written by Joe Gill and drawn by Vince Coletta. Why, why, why do you do this? You're <laughs> my heart, man. And last but not least, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a story called "You Also Snore, Darling," which was drawn by. Uh, someone named Logar. And do you know who Logar is? Logar's dad? Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Exactly. Oh, shit. Told you. It's from 1968. And it's beautifully illustrated. They're pulling stuff from, uh, Charlton and, uh, Standard. Let's see who else they grabbed from. Uh, comic media. I mean, these things are coming from a variety of sources. They're all so enjoyable. I love this book. There's a, an EC style masthead across the top. It says, kinky, sick, bizarro, and OMG. <laughs> 3.99, loaded with stuff. It's like 48 pages. Uh, again, in the tradition of haunted horror, it's awesome. I'm in for the duration. I don't care if they publish 300 of these things. I will buy every single one. Because there's so much fun to read. I fell in love with a commie, David. I know. I it turns know. out in the end, though. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, I, you, had, you, you had to go and fucking mention what's his face. It's it is very spare. the The line work is is. Very and if spare. it's if if it's romance, it's not as um, damaging or offensive, I guess. But um, right. I Charlton mean, I, I, employed a lot. Well, he he can he knows how to embellish an eyelash. It, it's it, he it, everybody everybody is it's good at one thing, work. and and you know that's. Let me check the eyelashes. Go ahead, check the eyelashes. Um, yeah, he does draw mm-hmm. multiple multiple eyelashes. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So that's uh, you should have stuck with that. Um. The, uh, I won't mention, because we already did our, our, our Ellis mention, I won't mention Moon Knight number four, which, which was awesome. Um, but, uh, I will mention the thing that I want is your in your travels, but I will, since you mentioned Coletta, I, I am, I've gone back to read some more of the, um, the Thin Black Line published by <laughs> Tomorrow's. Why uh, you do that? So. Because I just read a little bit because Zach sent this to me ages ago and I, I still haven't finished it because I can't. I read a few pages. I look at the examples. I get pissed and I put the book down and, and I, I need to finish it because it's, it's interesting. You get to a part where, where Larson's like, well, there, there's a, there's a panel in this issue of Thor where, you know, there was a train. In the background, and Coletta's just like I erased it, and and it's like you know it didn't serve the, the it didn't serve a purpose. There was no reason for the train to be back there. It's like Jack was just like, well, they're in a train yard, so there should be trains. So, but Coletta erased it because it just it it 
made, he knew better. It made the panel cluttered. Oh yeah. yeah, he knew better than Jack. And it made, yeah. it made the panel cluttered. So now, now things are lopsided or, or, or just they don't make sense. And it's pretty ballsy. And I can't say that he was wrong to erase it because it didn't do anything for the story, but still, he erased something that the artist put down. And, and that's, that's when I, it's a it's a crime. It's it no, is a crime. There is, there, there, is a, there are some, you know, when when um, anchors are are there in in my mind, part of their job is to make sense of the story. If if the anatomy is wonky, if something looks weird, it, it it's DC didn't like the way Jack drew Superman's head, his face. So Murphy Anderson and others drew Superman's face on Jack Kirby's bodies. Superman bodies when, you know, just because DC didn't like it. So I, I get that there are times where, um, where, where, where an anchor needs to fix things. But to just erase buildings in the background or, or instead of, you know, uh, that I don't think this, this cave needs to be, um, I don't think this room needs to be this bright. I'm going to put everything in shadows. And, and you just, you basically just destroyed everything that, that penciler put on the page to tell the story and you're like, well, I'm just going to, well, I accidentally spilt all this India ink on, on this page. So I might as well just make something out of it. And that's when I have to put the book down and, and, um, and read something that makes me happy. But I, I am again, working my way. Like this. What? It's like the 700 club with me. I, I can take about two minutes of that. Before I start going that's why I'm with uh, V8. <laughs> You know, that's almost an editorial decision, uh, going in and just removing a train like that. See, I don't know whether you agree with this, but I see an inker. Yes, they work in tandem with the penciler to produce a quality product, but inkers are beholden to the penciler. The penciler calls the shots, the, the inker follows. You are there to embellish, right. not, to, not to censor. Both shows. Yeah, you're not, it's, it's not, you, you're getting it uh, back then. You're getting it ready so it can be printed. You're you're yeah. you're there to add depth, embellish, and and when Makes I say sense. when I say fix mistakes, I'm talking about well, why does this dude have two left feet? You know, fix that. Don't say, well, there were eight people in the background. I think we only need three. That's not your call. Right. That that's an editorial decision, ultimately. So. um in your, know your place. The, your that's bonus. right. Uh, Iron Fist, the living weapon. Ooh. I, uh, I've been a fan since the first issue and, and the third issue I just read before we started tonight. Um, the thing that really stood out with me in the third issue are some of the flashback scenes where we go to young orphaned Danny Rand and, um, and, and he is, um, Trying to not be such a punk bitch and, and the, the art that it, when Andrews does the flashbacks, you, they look more like the old 70s and 80s comics where, you know, the, the, the pages didn't go edge to edge. You, you had, um, you had borders around the panels, but, but he has like these, he adds creases and it's almost like, 
the pages were folded or, or it's not a mint condition comic. It, the pages you're reading these on and it just looks amazing. And I, I, I end up having to reread the page and the previous page because I get so wrapped up in how the, the flashback pages look that I just lose track of what was going on. And, and I mean, the story itself is, is, is cool. The last page isn't as, um, may not be as heavy as, as that cliffhanger from original sin but it's still one word is is mentioned on the last page and you're like oh crap and and now i i, I want to read issue four and now but um andrews is still this he i don't know if he's a long time iron fist fan i don't know if you know this is a character he's always wanted to do um and unfortunately, we got stuck with Spider-Man Rain in the meantime. But we have the the um, let it go, let it go. <laughs> I'm gonna try, bro. I'm gonna try. Uh, but no, I I I am enjoying as, as much fun as as he's having telling the story as as uh, as grand a time he's having with Iron Fist. I'm having that much fun reading the story. So I um I still want uh, I said three issues. I still want people to check this out. Respect. In your travels, I am imploring everybody to go to their shops next Wednesday and pick up the first issue of Mr. Kieran Gillen and Mr. Jamie McKelvey's newest work, The Wicked and the Divine, number one. This was the perfect first issue of a comic book. It was increíble. It was awesome. And I have not always been a huge fan of Kieran and McKelvey's creator-owned stuff. I, I wasn't a big Phonogram fan. Right. Um, so this was a, a major pleasant surprise for me. Um, I, I tried it at the uh, behest of, of a certain Mr. Ron Richards. Yes, of course. And uh, he, he, there was the risk that he was just selling me on it because uh, – these are his buddies and, uh, he works for Image, but I have to say, he was not selling me a bill of goods. This issue was fan-freaking-tastic from the first panel to the last. It was an awesome first issue. Everything you want a first issue to be. Introduces you to the characters in an intriguing way, sets the universe up, pulls you into some of the characters and makes you want to know more about them, uh, leaves you with a aha moment. Just, just awesome. And the premise is essentially that Every 90 years, there's a cycle where uh, 12 gods, and they're not they're not from any particular genre. There's not just Judeo-Christian or, or, or Greco-Roman. They're 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 different deities from 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 different religions over the span of, of humanity. But 12 the 12 gods become incarnate as humans, and in a strike force moratorium sort of way, they live for two years on the earth, and we are set in a in the current incarnation of that and, and what it would be like to be a living God in a world that is on camera 24 by seven with no privacy and hero worship. It was fantastic. I cannot wait for the next issue. Uh, so y'all need to get on this. Don't be fools. Do it. Are there any, any Brit pop references in it? <laughs> None. I was waiting for. Good. I'll read it then. Yes. Right. Not a fan. Nor am I, which is why I say this is, no, yeah. I mean of the Britpop stuff. Right. I, I like, yeah. I like McKelvey. He's never looked better. Oh, cool. Nice. Right. 
I'll check it out. Cool. Gonzo. Okay. Um, sorry, man. I got distracted. I just got my thing. So, um, later, uh, I think in August of this year, maybe September. I'm not exactly sure. It's later in the summer. Um, Frank Espinosa has a, uh, Dracula book coming out. Oh, wow. really? Yeah. Yeah. And the pages I've seen are, are pretty fantastic. And so, uh, in preparation for that, uh, I really wanted to blow through, um, Rockato again, take a look at that. And, um, and I cracked it open thinking I, cause I've read it twice before and uh, I thought I could just kind of blow through it like in a weekend or something. And I forgot how fucking dense this thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in your travels, go, go pick up, uh, Rockato. Look, if you haven't read it already, um, I forgot just how amazingly detailed this world is and how complex and how sweeping a saga is told. Uh, yeah, I, I literally thought I could do this in a weekend and I think I read two issues. <laughs> You fool! <laughs> I know. Well, because I've read it before, and I was like, "Yeah, that's yeah. yeah." Just you know, that that Espinosa book's coming out, but um, yeah, I guess in your travels, pick up Rockato and uh, and uh, you know, be aware that it's unlike any comic I think that that's ever come out. I, I, I can't think format. of anything. Yeah, the the landscape format is fantastic. I mean, from the format to the style, to the way that the story is told, to the world that's created. To the motivation of the characters, to the story arc. I mean, everything about it is, is completely unique to this book. Uh, and it's all just brilliantly executed. Um, and I mean, you really care about the characters, uh, both villains and heroes. It's, it's, uh, it's really, yeah, it's, it's an amazing book. And, um, so familiar, familiarize yourself with, uh, Rakuto if you haven't in your travels and, uh, and, uh, make sure you pick up that Dracula book when it comes out, uh, in September. So. The, yes. There's my suggestion. We are all catog- cartographers in a sense, aren't we? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Map of the Philippines right on our back. Some of, some of us mumble more than others, like me. <laughs> um, so everybody, thank you for being here. Um, we have to thank Mr. Gonzalez for, for spending time with us as well. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Oh. Anytime. And, and if you would like to spend more time with us, you can find us in the very same place you found this next week. Same time. We'll be here like clockwork, man. Once a week, you're going to hear from us. True. Yep. And why do we do this? Because we love you. Because we love you so much. And Dap and I love you so much that we're going to actually meet many of you in North Kakalaka next weekend, bitches. And yes, Vince doesn't love you as much because he's not coming. It's true. I don't. I just say it every freaking week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so go see, go see David and and that other guy wherever they're going. Go guy. make sure make oh. sure you pick up La Mano del Destino because it's awesome. And and Jason, where can they they get these? Um. Well, uh, give me a day or two to get to my store. I had to had to pilfer it to go to con, but uh, uh it's castleandkeypublications.com. And uh, if you go to to the Castle and Key site, um. There's links to all my social media. Uh, if you hit me up uh, via social media, I'm really good at getting back to everyone who who, uh, who I talk to. And like I said, I love my fans, so I'm I'm really I'm always happy to, to talk to them. And then uh, if you are in fact going to San Diego Comic Con, uh, I do have a booth in the small press area, uh, booth number Q7. So uh, yeah, come by and say hi. I've got uh, lots of cool stuff to sell you. Nice. And we oh, would be great. remiss uh, even though we're not attending. If we didn't tell people who are listening to this today that um, if you're in the tri-state area, New York Comic Con's first annual special edition 
is taking place this weekend at the Javits yes. in the north section, which was, for those who went to Comic-Con last year, would be the area where Artist Alley was. Nice. And it is a freaking awesome – I'm bummed that I can't make it. it. It is an awesome collection of artists, and it's just – the focus is on art and comics. No extra stuff this time. Yeah, and, uh, awesome. Yeah, I mean, there are some uh, – Mahmoud is already in town. Yep. Because uh, he's been tweeting some New York stuff. Um uh, our boy, Mr. Ryan Brown, is up in there. Tim Seeley, Norton Stegman. Uh, rumor has it a certain jam piece rival of mine is going to be sitting at Stegman's table for the weekend, Mr. Jerry McDade. Um, wow. Raphael Albuquerque will be up in there. Nick Bradshaw. Woot! Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see who else. Another awesome dude and listener of the show, Marcio Takara. My boy... Mr. Now Ben 10, but, but, uh, but Mr. Deadpool, uh, himself, Joe Kelly, uh, will be there. Jim Rugg? No. Really? No. Wow. Jim Rugg will be at Heroes, though. Yep. Oh, that's right. Okay, that's where I heard that. And you know what? For those listening, uh, and if you're going to this, uh, New York City thing, can you do me a favor and if you have the opportunity that is take your iPhone and go up to some of these creators and say this is blah 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 and you're listening to 11 o'clock commerce because you know damn well these two wackos aren't going to do any of that <laughs> at Eros it ain't happening so get us some intros because we're running low and for the record Emanuela Lupacino who is the current artist on X Factor yeah. she is a vision really go to, go to the special edition website and look at her photo it's it's cray cray all right i love women thank you for listening we'll be back next week we love you so much thank you jason thank you everybody goodbye say good night david good night david night david oh he did it this week i love it when he complies doesn't happen often that's right try it